Welcome to the Armani Talks podcast. I'm your host, Armani Talks. In this podcast, I'm helping you level up your communication skills every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If this is your first time on the channel, welcome aboard and be sure to hit that subscribe button for the latest videos on how to become better with words. Today's going to be a special day because I have a returning guest back on who made a lot of noise in our first episode. Harsh Strongman, Life Math Money, welcome back for Unapologetic Shoots Part 2. Hey, Arman. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Harsh. Our first episode was a blast. There was a lot of great feedback and a lot of tough truths which were shared. How's it been since our first ever episode? It's been well. People seem to have liked it. I think it was about six or so months ago. So we are definitely due a second one. Yes, I'm pretty sure we should just keep this pattern going every six months new truths which are shared and stuff which need to be said because last time a lot of the stuff you were talking about were messages that people resonated with so let's just pick up from where we left off last time with all of the lockdown going on has your business been affected has your personal life been affected how's everything with that my business well, it's a so-and-so thing. I have two online businesses, that is affiliate marketing and life math money. And both of these have done exceptionally well. And when I say exceptionally well, I mean they've been doubling every six, seven months, which is really good. Everyone has been spending their time online and that is good for online businessmen. Physical businesses have not done well for obvious reasons. The government has mandated a lockdown and it's not going so well for most of the population out there. I see that a lot of inflation is also going on. Prices of raw materials have increased dramatically, especially plywood, steel, and so and so. So it's a it's a mixed bag, but overall, I'm doing quite well thanks to all the online exposure that I have. Yeah, I mean, with Life Math Money, I see you growing uh, routinely. And it seems like you're diversifying nowadays as well. You're growing on YouTube, Instagram as well. Yes. I saw that Twitter banned a lot of people for no no real reason. And I realized that it would be a bad idea to just have all of my business based on one social media platform. So as they say, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. I decided to start Instagram. I decided to start a YouTube I have a Facebook account as well that I barely use and a bunch Mm -hmm. of other smaller social media websites. I also have a Telegram group, which which turns out to be the best one other than an email list because when you have a Telegram group, no one can ban you from it. Or maybe the Telegram people can, but it's very unlikely to happen that you get banned from your own channel. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. When you're online... Relying on one traffic source is very similar to you owning a business and you only have one client. Yes, sure, that one client can pay you a lot of money for a certain period of time, but let's say that client just wants to drop you out of the blue moon and you have no other clients to fall back on, no other revenue streams. That's very similar to someone building on social media without diversifying at all. Because you know how it works. The algorithms are changing all the time. Sometimes they love you. Sometimes they don't show you. It's just a thing with the nature of the game. 
Agreed. I think that you're right about the fact that the algorithms are fluctuating, but I'm more concerned about censorship. And the analogy where you have one supplier or one customer, I would say it was relevant, but now it looks like all these social media companies are coordinating and they tend to ban you from all of them at once. In the sense that if, let's say, you get on some kind of hit list, you will be banned from YouTube, you will be banned from Twitter, you will be banned from Facebook, Instagram, and you will be banned from all of these websites in a very short time frame. It looks like these websites are all talking to each other and coordinating who gets banned. And it seems to be done for ideological reasons. So I feel that we need things like email lists and Telegram. Telegram does not seem to be one of those apps which is coordinating with Facebook and Twitter. So I see we need more of these independent social media companies than these conglomerates in Silicon Valley who seem to behave like one entity. That's a very unique insight because what seems very decentralized from the front end is very centralized often from the back end. For example, there seems to be so many different media companies out there nowadays. But if you look at the very, very back end, you'll see that there's only a few groups of people that control the entire thing. So if they do want to, let's say, blacklist someone, they're only a few phone calls away from doing that rather than jumping from node to node to node. So your observation goes on to show that what seems very decentralized with media is capable of having centralization creeping in. For your personal... Are you going to say something? Uh, Yeah. What I was saying was, are you talking about all these new chants that are owned by about four or so companies? Yes. I think that has been around for quite some time now. And that's kind of a thing that has been a thing with legacy media, that is TV, radio, and things like that. When you say social media on online, they, they don't, they're not one. I don't think they're all owned by the same people. They might be, I'm not sure. I feel that they are just, whatever department they have, which decides who gets banned or who doesn't, like the, the department which controls conversation, that department seems to coordinate with the departments of other companies in Silicon Valley. In the sense that mm-hmm. if you are a controversial figure and political, let's say you are on, you're some kind of right-wing person and Silicon Valley doesn't like you, then all of these guys will ban you at once and your existence online will just be taken away instantly. Poof, you don't exist anymore. For example, there was this guy called Stefan Molyneux. I don't like I Stefan Molyneux's content. I don't agree with all of it. He has some good content, but I don't agree with all of it. But The way he was taken down by Silicon Valley was not right. He got his YouTube account deleted. He was banned from Twitter. And I think he was also banned from Facebook along the same time frame. It was like they all just met and decided that this guy should not be online anymore. And they just took his existence away. Wow. And what sort of topics does he normally talk about? I think he talks about race and everything, but I don't think that's relevant. You know, what he talks about is not relevant. If you don't like him, that's fine. I don't agree with everything he says, but I don't think he his right to be online should be taken away because of it. And I know that these are all private companies and they can do what they want, but they're not exactly just companies anymore. They are large platforms that we all converse on. 
I think we need more government regulation that takes away their power to censor or if they want to keep their power to censor, then they have to be responsible for the things that are on the platform. So either you can be like a phone company who doesn't censor anything, who just provide a service that I can call whoever I want. They don't they don't make a rule that these are the things you can see on the call and these are the things you can't. If Twitter and all these social media platforms want to do something similar, that is we provide a space where you can say whatever you want, that's fine. But if they want to come up with rules that you can say these things and you can't say these things, then they also have to be responsible for the things that are being said. Then you're acting like a publisher and you have to be treated like one. Right now, we have this weird situation where all these social media companies are completely immune to lawsuits for user-generated content, user-generated mm-hmm. content. But they also decide the user-generated content, so which isn't fair. I don't think it is. They're controlling the conversation everywhere. They're making people censor themselves just so their account isn't deleted. And this is happening to politicians now, which is not right. If you can take away the voice of a democracy, at that point, you have literally suppressed the will of the people. And that should not be allowed to happen. For example, and I know I'm rambling, but go ahead. in India, there was a politician who said something. And then Twitter marked his tweet as manipulated media. And the, what, what he said, I think, it, I think it was under police investigation or something. I'm not, I'm not sure about this. And the police in India went to Twitter's offices and they gave a notice that uh, you have said that this politician's tweet is manipulated media and we are investigating it. So since you know that it's manipulated, you must have some evidence for it. So please give us what evidence you have so that we can also see oh. it. <laughs> And Twitter really did not like that. So they started spreading that the Indian government police raided their offices, which was not a raid at all. It was just a bunch of police people going and giving them a notice. And then they started talking about how Twitter is for everybody and the government doing this is against free speech. When the fact is that they don't care about free speech at all. They have all these rules where you can say this and you can't say this. So when you attack the social media company, it's about free speech and you're silencing the people. But when the social media company silences you, then they're just a private company doing what they want. And that is hypocrisy. And do you see most of the social platforms that you're on doing this? Or do you see certain platforms doing it more than others? I think the mainstream ones like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, these are doing it more than others. The newer ones which are still trying to build their base or which are by definition, or which they claim to be more conversation-friendly or censorship-free, like Gab and Telegram, I think those don't censor much, if at all. The bigger ones definitely do. The ones located in Silicon Valley and the ones which seem to have very leftist stuff tend to do, censor everybody. Which is pretty weird because, you know, if you call yourself a liberal, aren't you supposed to you know, allow people to say what they want. <laughs> Isn't it about having more liberty than following your norms of what is acceptable speech? It, it's very, I, I don't understand it. I think it's hypocrisy. Yes, and there's a big subjective nature to everything because what one person considers very hurtful and controversial, other times people just consider it their personal belief system. So when you're trying to step in too much, 
you're taking away the main purpose of social media, which is to be social and to to spread ideas. Now, at times, there's certain lines which need to be drawn because cyberbullying, that kind of stuff, is capable of happening. Which is why this sort of rules need to be very tangible, and it needs to be something that can easily be accessed by people who are routinely violating it. Because a lot of the people that are violating it oftentimes have no clue that they're violating it in the first place. Have you had a moment like that happen throughout your life math money journey? Because I follow you on Twitter, and by the way, guys, if you don't follow uh, Life Math Money on Twitter, be sure to take some time to follow him. Very unique content, and a lot of your content is truths, and some of them I could tell are I can rub a lot of people the wrong way. Did you ever get like warnings or uh, flags or anything like that? The funny thing is, I have never received a warning from any social media platform for anything that I have posted. I, I have. I read the rules for Twitter and I try to stay within them and I haven't had a problem with Twitter's algorithms yet. The thing you said that people can get cyberbullied, here's the issue with that. These are vague terms in the sense that they keep defining more and more things to be included in that term. For example, you are you familiar with the term microaggression? Yes, I am. So what do you understand by it? It's basically, I mean, I don't know like the exact definition, but it's basically when a certain tonalities are seen as disruptive to a community. That's my particular understanding of it. I think it's something like that. But I think that when you say something the other person does not like, that's what they call a microaggression. And they've just defined that term to be something now. And now mm-hmm. if you see something that offends me, that's a microaggression. You're being aggressive. You're uh, you're hurting me. The problem with any sort of line like this, like bullying is not allowed, is that these lines will be extended by just changing the definition of the term that is defining the line. What we need is social media platforms that allow you to say whatever you want as long as it's within the bounds of law. So if I threaten to kill you, that is illegal. That's a threat. And that should not be on social media. That that can be removable by the platform. But if I ask you to suck my dick, that is not a threat. I can legally ask you to do that and you can refuse. So that should still be on the platform. The platform should not ban you for it. And right now, Twitter does ban you for it. If you go and ask some random person on Twitter and say, suck my dick, you will get banned. (laughs) Well, what I've noticed actually is that certain times, I mean, I can't name the exact accounts, but on, let's say, the Twitter feed or the popular section, in very heated political debates and discussions, sometimes people imply that they're going to kill someone or that they're going to dock someone. And depending on their political party, nothing happens to them. While another segment, they could say something much harmless and something can happen to them. That's why it's very confusing. And one of the things you said is that you took some time to read the Twitter rules. For most of the people that use the platform, I don't think that they've ever read the Twitter rules in their life, which shows um, a great precaution by you. Um, Did you see anything in the rules that stood out to you? Or is it typical company jargon? I think the rules themselves are very restrictive and very biased. In the sense that, for example, let's say someone identifies as a transgender, that is, 
they they are male but they wish they were female so they act like they are female and if you go and say you're a dude you will get banned from twitter because you are misgendering them and this is not right in my opinion in the sense that you have you have taken a side if the rules are defined to favor a particular side then you can no longer be a neutral platform and you can no longer say that your platform is about free speech and shutting a platform off is a violation of free speech the whole transgenderism is real is from what i can tell a leftist position on, as a political thing and if the rules themselves say that you can only agree with the leftist position that is if i disagree and i call this guy a guy then my account will be taken away then the rules themselves are unfair do you get me i do get you it's like playing basketball but if you make a hoop you lose the game so you have no way of winning you you, you have to just stand there and watch the other guy play well there was a period where kareem abdul jabbar this was a couple of decades ago was dominating so much that they prevented him from dunking they were like no you can't dunk anymore and they got rid of the uh, rules for him so What that was dunking? one thing uh, dunking is when you are going to slam the ball into the hoop i know from our last conversation you don't watch sports too much but it's basically a very popular move that athletic players can do so when the rules was that one of the best players can't dunk that's like me telling you hey you can't tweet about this particular topic which normally gets the, you the most engagement it's like you're taking away a big a leg that they can stand on just because they're just saying that it's a part of the rules so that's exactly. just a quick little analogy I agree i think your analogy is apt but i think there's more to it than that i think that they're just trying to hide things that they know will they will lose on for example if if you had a theory that can be proven somewhere but then you make that style of proof illegal and then you have to prove it some other way and there is no other way to prove it then you're stuck they're doing that they're essentially making it impossible for you to contradict leftism which is I mean if they if they were just a private company and if they were a small company that would be fine but if the entire world is using you and you claim to be this well when you get banned let's say when Nigeria banned you like Nigeria just banned Twitter and then Twitter starts saying that this is a violation of free speech and we stand with the Nigerian people like you you can't say that anymore like you're not you're not a platform for free speech you're just a company making money then and then you can be banned then what is your problem So where do you see it where someone has very conservative viewpoints and they want to express their viewpoints but they don't want to break Twitter's rules at the same time? I think How do you explain someone like that going about it? Over the long run people will find alternatives. And I will give you an example of an alternative. I got so tired of having to censor myself that I started my own Telegram channel and that's where half of my controversial core and core controversial opinions go to now because telegram is mostly uncensorable so i can say whatever i want and i find that the quality of the content i have on telegram is superior to the quality of content i have on twitter over the long run i think these alternative platforms 
will beat out these censoring platforms. And I think that there's a significant chance that crypto or decentralization would play a role in how these platforms basically get slaughtered over time. And I know that for now, people tend to think that these network effects are so strong that these platforms can't be taken down, but that is not true. If you see the history of social media, you had Orkut, you had Facebook, and you had all these companies which nowadays no one uses. When was the last time you used Facebook? It's been a while. I've actually noticed that the older generation uses Facebook exactly. more nowadays. Old people use Facebook now. Young people don't. They have moved on to TikTok and whatever. So these are not these companies are not unbeatable. It just takes time and their network effects will eventually weaken as better players enter the market. I think over the long run, many of these companies will not survive simply because they decided not to survive by stifling conversation and taking away their own ultimate selling point. Yes, and it's as though the more mainstream something gets, the bigger something gets, it's easy to lose the sight of what made you big in the first place. This is one of the personal reasons where you know a lot of people have their opinions regarding Amazon. But personally for me, I enjoyed Amazon's philosophy in regards to just keeping the customer first. And if you're a seller on Amazon, it may not always be the best experience because they're so obsessed with keeping the customer first. But I mean, that's their philosophy and they haven't strayed away from it, where it seems as though that a lot of these big social media companies, brands that get big, they lose sight of what made them big in the first place. I agree. I think the reason why this happens is simply because the team grows. For example, when Twitter started, I don't know, but I think I think there was Jack who founded it and there were a couple of other people maybe. And they were a tight-knit group of people who were trying to just grow their company. But as Twitter grew, they hired more and more engineers. And these engineers didn't care about, well, they were not founders, right? They were just random engineers and they had their own leftist biases that engineers tend to have because they are very low testosterone. They don't left. They are very dorky. So they tend to be very leftist. And now that these engineers totally outnumber these founders and they have a strong say in the company simply because let's say that who decides who gets banned? Well, it's not Jack. He's not doing this work. He's just delegating. The people who decide these things are just hired guns. They've just been hired to do these things. And these guys are very leftist. So that's what they will do. They will create leftist policies and enforce leftist policies, and they will recommend leftist policies to the management. I think these are just people who are not invested in the growth of the company. They are more invested in their own ideology and what they think is right. And I think it will affect the company in the long run. It's not so bad. I think it's just, if, if these people did not exist, if these companies were functioning well, even at this size, it would become impossible to compete with them. So the fact that all these large companies stop functioning well is a good thing for guys like us because it gives us opportunity to take them down. Well, this is the era where individual faces beat uh, faceless logos or just a brand, like a solo brand of some sort. This is why when I heard that 
you know, Joe Rogan was going to Spotify. Uh, personally, for me, I thought this wasn't the best idea. I don't know, like the behind the scenes kind of stuff that went into that business decision. But as a creator, having independence and rights to your own content is so key nowadays. Because anytime that more and more people are getting into a complex system, it just becomes more complex. And a mastermind, for example, do you know what a mastermind is? I'm roughly familiar with it, but I'm not, I don't remember. It's just basically a group of people that are bouncing ideas off of one another for a shared goal. Uh, let's say there's a mastermind of people that want to uh, grow in their business. So they all come into a little community to discuss ideas. So they're not working alone all the time. If this is a group of four people, that's when there's a lot of uh, opportunities for the bonds to be very strong. But let's say you add that one person who's consistently complaining, whining, but it's only one person. That individual is capable of ruining the attitude of the entire complex system. Now, imagine that getting even richer and richer and richer. And this is how a lot of these um, companies that get big function, which is, I think, one of the best part of social skills is not only dealing with people, it's understanding when not to deal with them, which is often not discussed. But knowing the art of cutting down is what allows uh, companies to maintain integrity and scale at the same time, which a lot of companies nowadays aren't capable of doing. Interesting. So you're saying that it's essentially about preserving the culture of your company. Preserve the culture of the company and maintain your fundamentals. For example, with life math money, if you suddenly uh, the next week start, you know, peddling a simp-like uh, philosophy and out of nowhere you're talking completely opposite to what you were talking about before, clearly you're going to lose a lot of people. Well, let's say you're speaking like this because you hired more people in your team who have those types of philosophy. You may get uh, quick money initially because you're scaling very fast, but in the long run, you just destroyed your brand. People follow life math money because you've been congruent with your beliefs for a long period of time. And this is something that is a business decision in itself in the upcoming eras. Having some fundamentals, some, some sort of integrity for your brand, so people know what to expect. Overall, uh, th this was a great topic um, regarding decentralization, which I want to transition to the next part. I've seen you uh, discussing cryptocurrency. Just go a ahead, second. Go ahead. I'm trying to put them in words. Just, I'm trying to process it. Just a second. Are you familiar with freelancing? That is a company that does not hire people. It just outsources its tasks on a regular basis. So it's like a pseudo employee. Yes. Uh, a few popular ones are Upwork and Fiverr. Interesting. So I think that in the long run, we will have companies that will have tight-knit groups of engineers and everything else will not be individuals doing it in the sense that it won't be it won't be employees it would be freelancers and i know some companies that are already following a similar model that is the core business has employees and these guys get equity and everything while everybody else is freelancing they're contractors and if the founders feel that this contractor isn't suitable for the company, that is, they are disturbing the peace for everyone else, 
the contractor can easily be dismissed. Employees are hard to fire, but contractors can be taken away quite easily. I also feel that over the long run, especially with social media, we will have companies that are explicitly free speech. That would be a big selling point. And you see that now as well. If you see Gab, it's explicitly free speech. Right. And they were blowing up in January. Sorry? They They were popping off on January. They were like killing it because that's when the president had just gotten banned from Twitter. And a lot of people were leaving Twitter for Gab. I think that was a bad move on Twitter's part to ban Trump. They didn't get anything out of it. They only lost. I think that, yeah, you're right that Gab was growing fast at that time. But the events of that time were a bit startling to me. If you take, there was another website that went by the name Parler, P-A-R-L-E-R, which was similar to Twitter, but they essentially assassinated that website. Um, They were hosted on Amazon servers and Amazon refused to host them anymore. And because it was such a big website, it had millions of users, they had to go to, they had to find a new company that would host their website and they were essentially unable to do so. All the big companies like Google and Microsoft, they all refused to host their, their website and it was just, it was very startling how far they can take away someone's right to be online in the sense that this platform was a right-wing platform. A lot of the people there were from from the right-wing, or at least they were right to the center. And Silicon Valley did not like that. So they just took away their right to host a website. That's insane. That's what makes Gab unique, because don't they own their own servers? Gab is a very unique company in the sense that they own their own servers. They wrote all of their own software. And they don't depend on anybody else. Interesting. See, this is where the world of information technology is merging with media, where if you want to have some sort of media brand, media presence, the more that you understand information technology, how to set up your own servers, how to transmit your own messages, the more freedom that you have in the long run. And that's why Gab luckily didn't get canceled when Parler did, because one owned their servers, one didn't. Yes, Gab didn't get fully cancelled, but it definitely did kind of get cancelled. For example, the Gab used to have apps for Android and iOS, which you can no longer download because Android and iOS no longer allow Gab to have an application there. Gab cannot accept Visa and debit cards and credit cards like MasterCard because these companies will not work with Gab. So the only way to make a payment to Gab is by using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies or by sending them an e-check or cash and mail, which is not right. Again, this is this is a monetary system which these private companies are censoring. They're essentially censoring these companies. So if you are Gab, you are being censored. You can't accept the US dollar anymore from Visa, MasterCard and all of these other companies. And these companies that are censoring these smaller companies are essentially monopolies or oligopolies. Just a couple of them and they're censoring everybody else. They get to decide who can be paid and who can't be paid. And the only answer here is crypto. 
which brings me to the next point. What's your thoughts on crypto? Because I have been seeing you tweeting about it more often. Uh, what's your opinions and your future predictions regarding this field? I think crypto is the future in 10, 20, 30, I don't know how long, but in the future, we will not have central bank currencies, or at least they would be insignificant. I think people will use crypto to be their default choice of currency. I think crypto is the future. The future is crypto. And the traditional banking system is dead. Or they are dying. They, 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 will, they will disappear short sooner than you think. And I'll draw an analogy, okay? A lot of people think what I'm saying is too far-fetched, but 30 years ago in 1991, almost no one knew about the internet. No one cared. Everyone thought it was ridiculous. 2021, everything is online. You buy half your stuff from Amazon and your default mode of purchase is Amazon. I only buy something from a shop when I can't find it on Amazon or any other online store. The same thing will happen with money. Your default will become crypto and you will only use a central bank currency when crypto is for some or the other reason unavailable or cannot be used for whatever reason. I think crypto is the future and it's going to happen sooner than people think. People think it's going to take 100 years, but it's probably going to take much less judging by how long internet took to revolutionize the world. And internet took longer than crypto because with internet, the hardware had to be placed. People had to get modem connections to their house and all of these physical things had to be figured out. Now, almost everybody has internet and this is just a quick technology that they have to adapt to. I think it'll take much long, much sooner than it took the internet to become mainstream. And I think crypto, right. and more even people before will the be internet, using crypto than you think in the next few years. Right. And even before the internet, there was called the Victorian internet, which was wired, um, wired cables, also known as the telegraph. And people then were like, oh, well, this is just going to be a fad. But the thing with technology is that it lays the sedentary layers for the next one and the next one, making it easier and easier. So with the wired uh, cables came the uh, radio. That's when it became wireless. Uh, radio led the foundations for TV. TV led the foundations for the next generation. Computers came. And initially, computers were a computational device which eventually turned into a communications device. That's when internet came. And now it seems like the internet is laying down the seeds for crypto. So what happens is that it's an exponential curve rather than a linear curve. And uh, crypto is something that is coming. More and more people are discussing it. Now, here's a question for you. Do you predominantly see it something that people within business spheres are working on? Or do you see it becoming mainstream? Do you see people using crypto in uh, grocery shops and day-to-day -day purchases where the average Joe can use it? Or is it for a niche group of people? I think everyone will use it and I think they will use it for everything. For example, if your son wants to go and buy chocolate, you will give him some crypto to do it. Do you see any form of centralization creeping up in crypto? Or do you think that's uh, just not possible with the way it's set up. I think where coins like Bitcoin are concerned, there is a lot of scope for this happening. 
but for coins like Monero, I don't think so. And for those of you who don't know the difference between Bitcoin and Monero, Monero is more private. It, it has something called ring signatures and it shields your ID in the sense that your address is not visible. So when I pay you, people cannot know that I paid you. I could have paid, say, 10 other people in the same transaction. And it's impossible for them to figure out what the balance in your account is. With Bitcoin, it's completely simple. It's a transparent blockchain. And if I pay to an address, everybody can see that my address, my wallet paid to your address. Now with crypto, what can happen, sorry, with Bitcoin, what can happen is, let's say that the US government, the Chinese government, and a bunch of other governments decided that some addresses should not be allowed to spend their Bitcoin for whatever reason. For example, let's say that some darknet drug dealer was caught and he ran away with his Bitcoin, but you figure out what his address is. You don't want him to be able to spend his Bitcoin because it's essentially drug money. What they can do is they can create a blacklist of these UTXOs that they don't want spent. After they have done that, they can go to all the large miners that are located in China or wherever. And these miners, they, they are not cypherpunks. They don't care about free speech or whatever. They are just companies who are mining this thing and they have to make money. They have real employees. They have real investors and they have to deal with the government. The governments will tell them that if you mine a block that spends this UTXO, then you have laundered money. So you can't mine these blocks. In the sense that you can't mine a block that has these transactions in it. And there are already pools that are doing this. There's a pool called Blockseer. And Blockseer only mines whitelisted KYC transactions. It doesn't mine all transactions. I think that with things like Bitcoin, which have completely visible blockchains, this is going to have happen more and more. The government will create blacklists and they will go to miners and say that if you want to operate here, you have to make sure that you don't mine a transaction with these blocks being spent. And you are not allowed to build on top of say, a block that spends these UTXOs. So for example, let's say I, I have a miner or I have equipment at my house and I mine in a block that the government doesn't want to mine then these miners will not build on top of my block. They will build a separate block. And if the government controls, say, 40% of the hash rate, like this, let's say they have 40% of the hash rate, I have two options. Either I can, one, you know, mine this illegal transaction or the transaction which the government doesn't want and get the $5-$10 fee that this guy is paying me for the transaction and risk a 40% chance that my block will be orphaned. Or I can just not mine it. I can just comply with the rule the government wants and I can keep the entire Coinbase reward. So for me, for from a game theory perspective, I am likely to just comply with the government thing, even though I don't care about it, simply because of math, of the probability that my block will be orphaned and I will lose the Coinbase. And I think that this there's a very good chance this will happen over the long run because bitcoin is mined with asics that that means that there it's it's very there are very few people who are mining bitcoin 
as compared to mining non-ASIC coins. Mm -hmm. So there are a few large organizations. And these large organizations can definitely be approached by the government and given rules like you can't mine XYZ output, uh, sorry, UTXOs, or you can't mine UTXOs that have been spent in the previous block. You, you can't mine on top of this block. And they might even come up with rules like if there's a coin join transaction, then all the outputs are now tainted. It won't be... So, so Some people think that they can escape this with the Lightning Network. But what do you think the government is going to do? The government is going to say, okay, you guys use the Lightning Network, so it's fine. Or are they going to say, if you use the Lightning Network, it's your responsibility to ensure that you use you only do transactions with people who are not blacklisted. And if you do a transaction with a blacklisted account, then your output will become blacklisted as well. What is the government more likely to do? The government is more likely to do, to do the second one. I mm-hmm. think this is an unaddressed, unaddressed problem with Bitcoin. And I think in the future, it's going to show up more and more and more. And I also understand that Bitcoin is a very cultish thing in the sense that there are people who don't like any criticism of Bitcoin in the sense that you point out anything that can that is not positive about Bitcoin and they all pounce on you. So it's unlikely that this will be addressed. Do you do you find yourself critiquing Bitcoin and getting attacked for every now and then in your Telegram group or wherever you discuss it? I don't critique Bitcoin as much. I think Bitcoin is a very, very good coin. Because as far as money goes, it's the most stable thing out there in the sense that it doesn't change frequently. Its UTXO model is very good. It's very decentralized. The pros of Bitcoin definitely outweigh its cons. So I don't find myself critiquing it. I just feel that if it had privacy built into it, then it would be a superior version of Bitcoin. I think that Bitcoin, if it can, it should adopt monitor-like privacy measures. Right. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of budding coins nowadays as well. Is there anything else that catches your eye? I like Monero. I like Ethereum. I like LinkChain, Chainlink. I like Bitcoin. I also own a bunch of smaller coins, but that's essentially me gambling. I don't understand what they are for. But these four coins, that is Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero and Chainlink are my main holdings. Got it. I don't hold any DeFi coins and I don't hold any NFTs at the moment. The way I participate in decentralized finance and NFTs are just by Bang Ethereum. So would you consider um, business as a more of a profession, Harsh, or do you consider it more as a hobby? Because nowadays, a a lot of my listeners and a lot of the people who listened to the last episode are looking for different ways to improve. And a lot of them, you know, want to enter some sort of business, especially due to the ease of access. Do you have any advice for, you know, people stuck in lockdown that are trying to get their feet into business? A few tips that you learned the hard way that you would give to your younger self? I think if someone wants to get into business and they have no idea what they want to do or they don't have a particular business plan, they should just start social media accounts and try to develop an audience. Then whenever they come out with a product they want to sell, they will have someone to sell it to. All businesses require leads. And if you don't have anything to sell, if you don't have a product or anything for the moment, 
you can still acquire goodwill and leads by using social media you can create the product later you can essentially tell what your audience wants and you can create that and that's the simplest thing to do and throughout your journey that uh, you currently do affiliate marketing live math money is there anything other that you see yourself delving into in the near future or are are you pretty happy with where you're at right now in the near future i will probably do something along the lines of software as a service or software companies in general i'm learning computer science for now i think i'm pretty set with life math money and affiliate marketing the very revenue generating and they have high margins but over the long run i want to do software as a service software is essentially one of the only few ways that you can become really 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 big and are you teaching yourself uh coding yes i'm doing something called the ossu which is called the open source society university for computer science and they have taken they have essentially compiled courses from mit and a lot of other universities and recreated a com- computer science course that you can do online by yourself so i'm more than halfway through it i think in less than a year i should be done with it i've been doing it for like 2 years now but i have two businesses to manage so i study slower than a full time student but i should be done with it by next year it's completely I, i did it myself it's not that difficult it's just a matter of having a discipline and doing a little bit every day interesting we're going to be talking about um productivity later on in this episode but what you just brought up was very interesting because the whole thing with teaching yourself nowadays is more of a thing than ever and throughout this talk we've been talking about how social media is you know obviously changing up the game from traditional media we talked about how money is changing as well but the, another thing that's changing nowadays is the field of education where you don't necessarily always need to get a classroom lecture and um a test in order to measure whether you understand a subject or not now granted some subjects help for, for having a formal education so my background is in engineering i learned a lot from my engineering background and i enjoyed the formal education but another part of my background is communication skills uh, such as learning public speaking storytelling creative writing etc and for these i never went to school for my path is very different than uh, the traditional path of someone who gets a masters in communications where do you see the role of self education in the upcoming era do you think we're seeing another renaissance era with the rise of the polymath a person who's uh, well educated on a multitude of different fields or do you see self education being a little fad right now because of the lockdowns and us going back to traditional education for the most part once the lockdowns are done i don't think we will go back to traditional education simply because it's too expensive and because the universities have lost their minds and have become completely retarded in a sense they have very they've also become leftist let's say i think self education is a way to go for the most part and i know that employers are starting to see that too i know employers who will now hire people who have taught themselves earlier that was not the case earlier they would ask for a college degree and that is changing now the only reason to get a college degree 
is the networking and that is being taken away by twitter and all these social media websites now you don't need college for anything the only reason you might go to college is let's say you wanted a medical degree and you need a medical license for it but if you wanted to learn coding or computer science you don't need to go to college for that now you can do it by yourself and all the big companies are happy to hire you you don't need a degree so why would you spend a hundred thousand dollars and get a college student loan that you pay off for 10 years and go to college when you can do that by yourself from your house and not incur all these expenses it i think it only makes sense that self-education is going to pick up more and more i will draw a caveat here that is i think self-education will always be somewhat limited to intelligent people i don't think dumb people will ever pick up a computer to learn anything they will watch youtube and whatever but they will not use it as a device to learn that's why i say whether you're going to do a business full time or part time as a hobby whatever try to start some kind of business because the process of trying to generate money create a profit is way more than that the modern day entrepreneur has to become a polymath otherwise they don't succeed in the long run so if you're looking to find a way to use the internet in a productive manner if you have a business you're going to find different ways to ask the internet the right questions because if you have some sort of target then it becomes much easier to mold your mind otherwise you're just lost in the abyss have you heard of the uh, subject called media literacy no i haven't this is the subject where someone is capable of consuming media and spotting the intent and is capable of creating media as well and i believe as the information age gets richer and richer this subject is going to become much more important because with the internet a lot of people are having their time wasted and they have zero clue it's because they don't have a goal in the first place regarding what to do so if you let your time get wasted it clearly will get wasted um so you mentioned your um degree is going to be done next year do you did you enjoy getting like a degree style uh class or is this something that you thought you could have learned by searching random clips on youtube did you like the formal structure of it all well yeah, the, the formal structure is definitely important and that is because when you go to youtube and you learn something like computer science you will find videos that are either too basic or too advanced in the sense that you will either know everything or you will be missing prerequisites you need a formal structure that teaches you everything in a way that it builds on the knowledge you already have so the first classes will give you the basics then it will increase in complexity then it will increase your next course will build upon the knowledge you gained from the previous course i think that is definitely essential and i think websites like coursera and edx and all are doing it quite well i don't see a world where people will learn off random clips of youtube that is not happening maybe they will learn random topics like if you want to learn how to edit a video then you might learn mm-hmm. that from youtube but if you mm-hmm. want a comprehensive education in a particular field that will be more structured it will still be online but it will be more structured than random videos on the internet yes so with youtube it could be just very specific particular fixes that someone is looking to do let's say someone is trying to get a deeper voice or they're trying to fix a nasally voice 
that's something that you could just get a quick clip on. But if this YouTube creator is smart, then they could be one of the content creators, let's say on a platform like Skillshare. I haven't used Coursera too much, but they can have a full course there, which can basically serve the YouTube video can serve as a lead magnet for something bigger. Do you see yourself ever teaching a course? I know you have a few books out, which I'm going to link in the description box I right down below. I created a course on crypto. If you go to teachyourselfcrypto.com, oh, you? it's uh-huh. a completely free course on everything crypto, how Bitcoin works, how Ethereum works, what is DeFi. We're still building the later portions of it, but the Bitcoin section has been released. It's completely free. And I created it simply because I was myself wanting to learn. So I decided that I will take the best resources of wherever I learned from and I will put them in a course. And it's a more structured way to learn about Bitcoin. Yeah, go on and send me the link after this and I'll link it in the description box right on below. Sure. Uh, it's teachyourselfcrypto.com. I think that in the long run, the best teachers in the world will create their own courses for the subjects they know and they will sell it by themselves. For example, let's say that you want to learn linear algebra. You can learn it from wherever you want. You can learn it from your local professor or wherever. Or you can learn it from Gilbert Strang from MIT. And right now, Gilbert Strang's course on linear algebra is available on MITx, OCW. But in the future, there will be more Gilbert Strangs and they will create like a Gumroad course or whatever. And you will be able to purchase their entire course directly from them, including the textbooks and whatever else is needed. You won't need to go to college to learn from the best professors. You will be able to buy their courses directly. And this allows for a much more hyper-targeted niche as well. Let's say, for example, you know how to write uh, comic books, for example, and you know how to do a particular type of cartoon, uh, not the... Uh, not the very nuanced cartoons, but more stick figures. This is something that you could easily create a course on. And I'm sure that from the millions or billions of people on the internet, at least a fraction of the people can resonate with it. Uh, There's this one guy um, who has a famous podcast, and he had this talk where he was talking about how nowadays new media is giving the ability for hyper-targeted niches to form. Where 30 years ago, if I were to have a a podcast on uh, Harry Potter uh, and my thoughts regarding Harry Potter, regarding even a specific book, this wouldn't be something that's a mainstream success. But in this era, it's not a stretch to find at least 100,000 people who will be interested in a topic like this. So with new media, hyper-targeted niches are capable of forming. Um, I think I think what I'm referring to is a bit different, though. I think we need to divide this topic into different topics. That is, one would be more academic, like computer science and all these bigger fields, and the other will be more practical and applica- apply, apply, the application of those things. For example, the bigger academic field can be art and drawing, and the application could be comic book stick figure thing. So I think what you're referring to is more along the lines of applications, who can edit the photo the best, who can draw the best, and these things can be taught by the artists and the doer themselves. And what I'm referring to is more along the lines of academic learning, that is learning learning the fundamentals and not the application of something. So you're talking more about the theory. 
Yes. So, for example, I'm I'm talking more about how the the engine of a car works, and not about how a car is actually driven. So you don't need ah. to know about how a car works to drive a car. They are entirely different things, although they're related. But uh, what you are saying, the hyper targeting thing, is more along the lines of driving a car and driving different cars, driving at different speeds, driving in different terrains. And what I'm referring to is how the internal combustion engine actually works. Why not combine both? I don't think they are related enough to combine them. In the sense that you don't need to know how an internal combustion engine works to drive a car. And the knowledge of how the engine works will not improve your driving skills. They are fundamentally different topics. They just have cars in common. So, so what here, I'm going to say is that you could learn about internal combustion engines from wherever you want, but you will want to learn from the best. And in the future, you will be able to directly purchase a course from the best. So throughout my career, I've always had, you know, I've enjoyed theory and application. These are two fields or parts of a subject that I've enjoyed. But let's use my engineering career. The way that the engineering program, the college that I was a part of was designed, was that the first two years, you're learning the theory. You're learning about what a capacitor is, a diode, a battery, that sort of stuff. And the final two years, you're finally getting the labs, learning how to do something. The type of learner that I am, I need it to be reversed. I need to first create the radio, mess up, uh, fail completely, I keep on trying. And then if you introduce to me um, all the theory, that kind of stuff, that's when my mind starts to plug in the concepts much better. But different people learn different ways. Some people like the theory first and the application second. You are right in the portion where they're vastly different in how you learn it. But I believe that application should be taught. Well, a little bit of theory could be taught before the application. But I believe it's the application that creates real street smarts individuals rather than someone who thinks they know a topic versus actually knowing it. I see what you mean. And to an extent, I agree. And for a lot of things, they can be taught simultaneously. For example, if you want to learn how to write good software, there's a lot of software you can write while learning and that will teach you a lot about writing software. For a lot of topics, that's not possible. For the one I gave you, for example, learning about how a car works versus driving a car. They are, you, don't, you don't need to do both of them together. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, that it depends on the topic and what that we, are, we have. It, it's, it's a more topic-specific conversation. And what the costs of switching are, in the sense that it's very it's very easy for someone to learn both how to code and write some programs at the same time, but driving a car, learning how to drive a car, and learning how a car works, are two entirely different things. And to learn them together would be like doing two separate courses at once. For sure, for sure, it's very similar to using a phone uh, versus understanding a phone. A lot of people use the phone, but they don't understand the microchips, processors, that sort of stuff that goes on inside. Yeah, but that means like that using a, well, let's say using YouTube and l- knowing how HTTPS works. Like you, you don't need to know how HTTP works to use YouTube. It's it's different. Yeah, I mean, if you're someone that's sort of delving into a field, if you're just watching YouTube videos, you don't really need to know that. 
But if you're going to double down on a field, you should honestly know it inside and out to the best of your abilities. Where, for example, with Twitter, what you were saying, I mean, you're not just a consumer of tweets. You create tweets and you're a rather large account. You have over 200,000 followers on Twitter. So for you, um, the reading the Twitter rules may be smart, while for the average Joe who's just reading uh, tweets and not creating anything, it's not worthwhile their time. So to solve the issue with the whole theory and application part, it honestly means which field are you doubling down on? So for me, for example, I have a few books on Amazon. Well, I have one book and I'm releasing a few more within this year. For me, it's extremely smart to read the Amazon rules for creators versus someone who just purchases books. So just to kind of summarize what Harsh and I are saying, folks, if you're going to double down on a field, try to learn the theory and the application. Really try to become the Google of your niche so you can answer every question, but you have the courage to execute on the movements as well. Because you don't want to be one of those people that knows the theory, but when they're supposed to actually show their reps, they don't have any reps. That's just a process of analysis paralysis, where I, I think this is a good time to transition, Harsh. How do you maintain productivity? Because you just said that you got a couple of businesses, you're starting courses. Do you do you journal your routine in the beginning? Is there a certain framework that you follow? What I do is that every night before I sleep, I create a to-do list of all the things I want to get done the next day. And from the time I wake up the next day, I start executing everything on to-do lists and I don't rest until the to-do list is entirely gone. And only then I have my leisure time. This way I ensure that I get everything I want to get done in a particular day done. That's, that's all I do. People talk about different, different things for productivity, but this is essentially all I do. I just wake up, I do what I need to do before I can rest. And are you one of those guys that hustles pretty much most of the day or do you do you work or a small period and then you actually schedule in time for rest? I don't schedule in time for rest. I don't find the need to rest, to be honest. I rest maybe 10 minutes every once in a while, but I don't really feel like resting. I mm-hmm. typically work a long time every single day simply because of how many projects I have going on at once. So for example, right now, I am learning computer science, as I mentioned. I have two full-scale businesses that I manage. I also lift four times a week. I go out. I have to have a social life as well. So simply because I have all of these things going on at once, I have to read an hour a day. It just takes up my entire day. Last conversation, Harsh. I got to bring it up. A lot of people were shocked. You never heard of Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, you don't remember that part of the conversation unless you do. But no, uh, I think I had <laughs> another podcast with someone else and that guy asked me about the same person. So I, I don't really? know who these people are. I think I think they're football or basketball players. I googled their names. It's, it's, a, it's a dark guy who died recently. Kobe something. Kobe Bryant. Yeah, I mean... He, See, this is where I think some people were confused because this is like an icon for 
for most people, as in, the, I, I don't want to uh, go super detailed, but even people that don't like him or aren't uh, familiar with basketball at least heard the name, let alone Michael Jordan. But when some people found out you haven't even heard of the names, they were like, dang, does this guy watch any form of modern entertainment or even turn the TV on? I so I want to ask you that question. Do you? Do you watch any form of TV? I think the last time I watched TV was in 2009 or 2010. So you don't watch like anything then? Like uh, you mainly consume new media. Yeah, but even for example with new media, I don't I don't use it for entertainment. I use it for my businesses. I, I don't I don't waste my time because I don't have time to waste. And the other thing is that I am not a very sports person. I, I don't care about any sport. I have never watched a single game of any sport except once back in 2012 was a cricket game that I watched with my dad. But other than that I have never cared about sports i don't watch sports i don't watch tv i don't watch movies i don't have time for any of these things so for me when someone says that everyone has heard of this guy i can only look at them with surprise and say why do you care like why have you heard of him is he giving but, you I mean, money or like what is the use but i mean to push back on that i mean there is a time for productivity i get that but I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, being updated with some form of entertainment where, you know, people have favorite musicians, uh, favorite athletes, maybe growing up. I don't find a, a problem with that, where you consume some form of entertainment just to say updated. And I also believe this is a good aspect of social skills where you have topics to discuss with other people rather than being like, well, what's even the point of knowing a topic like this? I see what you're trying to say. I will I will only say that there are better sources of entertainment out there than to follow all these random people who don't care about you. For example, if you get cancer, and I hope you don't, but let's say you do, is this guy that you've followed for, for years ever going to care about you? Like, will he even... If you send him an email with a photo of you, and say that I've been watching you play football for 10 years, Kobe, and I have now gotten cancer. Please help me. Is he even going to read your email? He's not. He doesn't care about you. So why do you care about him? Well, I think there's a big difference between being like that, like a straight up fanboy versus someone who's just aware of the content. You know what I'm saying? Where a lot of people who consume your content, I'm sure they see you as Someone who enlightens them, but they're not like, I wonder what Life Math Money's doing at 6 p.m. today. Like, I really care about that. They're just aware regarding certain things. But this is a topic I guess we could agree to disagree on. But I do want to ask you the question, what sort of entertainment do you do, especially for your relaxation time when you do have time? I go for walks. I write. I talk to my friends. I will go out and have fun in the real world. It's definitely not anything to do with staring at a screen because mm -hmm. I do plenty of that in my work day already. And you mentioned you don't um you don't do any drugs, any kind of drinking. Do you go like clubbing that sort of stuff? I do not. I don't do drugs, I don't drink, I don't 
I don't consume anything which alters my state of mind. I I don't right. I don't go to clubs simply because I don't drink and I don't see I don't even enjoy clubs as much. I think they're very loud and they damage your hearing. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that my days already so occupied that I do not have time to waste. And I find more pleasure in taking walks, being in nature, talking to real people than consuming alcohol and watching TV and eating pizzas. <laughs> I think that might just be a fundamental thing that people can disagree with me on. I don't think if I if I miscommunicate, I don't think there's anything wrong with people who want to say watch an hour of TV after they come back from home, after they work and they're tired, then they want to watch TV for half an hour. I don't think they're inferior or anything of that sort. It's just something that does not appeal to me. And I think that it's a waste of time and there are better sources of leisure available. For example, you can go and have a walk in a garden and sit and relax. And I find that to give me more relaxation than watching TV does. I think that TV is also, it isn't just entertainment, you know. I think a lot of it is, they're putting bad ideas into your head. For example, TV is essentially propaganda now. Whatever these large companies want to want you to believe is true is what is being pushed on TV. For example, LGBT. Now, whether you like that or not, don't you think it's a little suspicious that everything has LGBT now? And everyone is saying it's perfectly normal on TV. Isn't that a bit suspicious? It feels like all the larger companies which control the conversation want you to think so, and that's why it's on TV. I think if even if you take shows like How I Met Your Mother, or if you take, say, How I Met Your Mother, I think that it was... I used to watch this show a long time back when I was in high school and college mm-hmm. and that show would involve a couple of people meeting up in the bar and a lot of my friends are drinking because of it because now they thought that drinking is normal they would never drink before they were like in india it's not it's not a thing where people drink only some people drink in india so these guys would have never drunk and their families don't drink but after watching this show for years they essentially learned or they were forcefully taught without their knowledge that drinking beer is a normal activity of leisure and that's how they start drinking. So I think that these noises that society inputs into your head through TV and through social media algorithms, I don't think it is entirely positive for you. So even though you might feel relaxed, it's also messed up your mental models a little bit every day. I don't find that to be good for me so i don't watch any tv well that's what they call a television program get it they program but um yeah well yeah for sure there's a lot of junk that i see on tv anything that's mainstream i typically stay away from there's a few stuff that i'll check out every now and then i I like to watch documentaries which can often open up my perspective and certain shows i mean uh, that i think are well done that showed great storytelling, especially for my field, where if I'm creating a speech, having versatile story angles always helps in terms of delivery. But 100%, I agree that 
uh, you could push ideas in a very subtle way. And that's the scariest thing when it's not being forcefully put down your neck. It's just something that is so subtle that you just think it's a norm. And with your example, you gave the uh, case of your friends who saw other people drinking beer. And it's like, oh, I guess this is normal. It's actually weird not to do it. And this is a very subtle way to brainwash other people. So you got to be extremely mindful of the content that you are consuming if you are consuming it. Uh, and if you're like Harsh, where you know self-improvement does serve as a relaxation, where you walk, where you go to the gym, uh, that's perfectly fine as well. Uh, and with that being said, do you find yourself difficult um, having difficulty finding certain conversation material with friends who are not self-improving? I don't have any friends who are not self-improving, so no. So I, all of your friends are like in the level up lifestyle? I only make friends with people who I think will be worthwhile in the future. I don't have any loser friends. And all my friends are into self-improvement. If they become losers, that is, they become happy with where they are and they might start wasting their time, then they will no longer be my friends. They will become acquaintances. I'm very picky with who becomes close to me simply because mm -hmm. you become like the people you surround yourself with. So if you hang out with nine broke people, prepare to be the 10th. It's <laughs> very important that you pick the right people to surround yourself with. I did an article on this. I forgot what I titled it. Let me check. Hold up. Yeah, it's called, Are You in the Right Environment? And the basic premise is that your brain has trouble staying still. So, for example, if you are in the grocery shop and you're just standing there bored, you will pick up any food item and start reading its labels. Your brain will never do nothing. It, it's always observing. It's always taking in information from the world. And it takes in a lot of information from the people you are around. To give you an example, let's say that you become friends with a bunch of fat people. Here's what's going to happen. You will go out with them and they will want to go to a restaurant. Okay, fine. You go with them. They will order extremely unhealthy food. And you will order somewhat healthy food. Like you, will, If they order a very greasy sandwich and a very greasy pizza, you will order a less greasy pizza. You might order, say, a, a wheat base or a thin crust pizza. And you might think that, okay, this is less unhealthy than what these guys are eating. But you have still started eating unhealthy now. That is something you would not have done earlier. But now because you're around these guys, you're doing it. You will become like the people you surround yourself with. And it is extremely important that you surround yourself with people you think are going to matter and are going to be successful in the future. The way I think of friendships is a lot like the way I think of investments. I want them to pay off. I don't want them to become liabilities. And I think that befriending random people and talking to them about sportsmen and TV shows is essentially just wasting your time, ruining your personal culture, and reducing the chances of your success in the future. And earlier you said that you view acquaintances and friends in a different boat, which is a great distinction to make. I made a YouTube video regarding the difference. I'm going to link it in the description box right on below. Uh, my personal philosophy is this. Have little friends and have many acquaintances to build a social network. 
Uh, friends are someone that I consider people that you can go through good times and bad times with for a personal bond to form. And acquaintances are people that you could hit up like once, twice a month. And both of you guys are adding value to each other in some sort of way. Do you have a personalized definition of the difference between a friend and an acquaintance? Because plenty of people confuse both of them as the same thing. An acquaintance is someone you know, but you don't interact with much. And you would not count on them to help you in case you need something. A friend is someone you can rely on, someone you can trust with anything. And someone who is much closer to you, someone whose opinions you take very seriously. I think that's the bigger difference. Great. So an acquaintance, if, if an acquaintance says, Arman, you're an idiot, you wouldn't care because you don't know this person as well. But if a friend comes and says that to you, you will ask him, why do you think so? It's just the amount of, how seriously do you take this person? Yes. How, how much would you say that your acquaintances, your friends have helped you in your uh, business, for example? Because when people may think business, the first thing that may go to their mind is the money. But a lot of it is the connections. How do the connections impact your life? For most of my experience, I have made a lot of friends because of business and not the other way around. So from my experience, your existing friends will be of little to no help with your business. But through your business, you will make some very good friends. And this is, this is a quote from John D. Rockefeller that says that a friendship based on business is superior to a business based on friendship. And that has proven true in my experience. I have found people I can trust through my business, but I have not found any good business partners just out of my friend circle. Unique. I read a book called Titan, which is the biography of John D. Rockefeller written by Ron Chernow. And it's one of the most influential books that I've read. It's, it's, it's influenced my way of thinking very significantly. And the story of John D. Rockefeller is very interesting. And for people who don't know about it, this used to be one of the richest men in the world. Like about 100 years ago, the richest man in the world was not Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or any of these technology people. It was John D. Rockefeller. He created an entire oil refining empire from scratch. And his origin story is very humble. His father was a con man. His father was a witch doctor. That is, he would sell people fake medicines that didn't work and he would trick them into paying him. And his father would disappear for long portions of time. And John D. Rockefeller was this kid who was essentially left alone. And he figured out his way into business and he worked really hard. And he became one of the richest, most influential people in the world. He became so powerful that the Sherman Antitrust Act was enacted specifically to break down Standard Oil. It had become so powerful. I find it to be very inspiring because I relate a lot to how John D. Rockefeller operated. He was a very focused person who didn't waste his time and it paid off for him. And I can relate to it. It has 
impacted me very significantly and i highly recommend everyone read titan it's a very good book the john d rockefeller andrew carnegie henry ford these are a few of the billionaires from uh, over a century ago that aren't often known yet they had such a huge influence on culture as a whole did you hear about the other two that i mentioned andrew carnegie henry ford are you well versed on them yes i have i know andrew carnegie was steel he had a steel business and henry ford was into cars but i'm not as versed on them as i am on rockefeller i find I'm rockefeller check out that book since the since your podcast is based around social skills rockefeller was extremely good at getting people to do what he wanted in his company and his was one of the first corporations in the world he didn't have a majority stake so he needed the cooperation of other people the way he did that was he would essentially only motivate people to do what is best for the company and he would never get into fights with people in the sense that in the meetings he was in he would spend most of his time just listening and sitting rather than arguing so other people might scream and argue at each other but this guy will always just sit there and listen and process information and only give his comments in a succinct way later he would not get into fights he would not create discord and he would generally try to run the company in a harmonious way another interesting thing i learned about john d rockefeller is that he barely used the term i in the sense that he would not say i want this or i want that he would try to anything he wanted he would put it up as a suggestion that do you think you might want to do that rather than i want you to do this he would put up his thoughts as questions and suggestions and that would avoid stepping over the egos of other people and that is something that was a big takeaway for me because i i'm a businessman i am an entrepreneur and i have never had a boss so if i want something done i want something done but what i learned from his book is that you don't have to be that way and you can get more done from people by not hurting their ego so if you say let's say that you have a subordinate who has made a mistake you can either say you made a mistake here 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 and you need to correct yourself or you can say do you think this is correct or you, know, you might you might just ask him innocently that this 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 might have an error like what do you think and he is more likely to learn from this and improve than from a more blunt conversation i think that's a very big takeaway that that was important for me when i read it that's a big takeaway mainly because when you're communicating with others let's say you're a very mentally tough person especially if you're an entrepreneur a person who's never had a boss you most likely are going to be uh, very sharp minded and at times when communicating with others uh, the very mentally tough person also has the perception that the other person is mentally tough and it seems as though with John D Rockefeller he went in with the assumption that other people were more sensitive which allowed him to be very tactical with his words and this is something that i actually learned myself where i'm a very hard-headed sort of guy for most of my early life and if i communicated with people like that they would not like that They'd be like man i'm not like you you got to soften it up for me if i'm you know giving feedback to a upcoming speaker or something like that 
So one thing that I came to find out was in order to be more curious, assume that someone is smarter than they are. In order to be more patient, assume someone is more dumber than they are. And just for having a more beautiful tonality and giving feedback, I just assume people are more sensitive than they are. And this was a little cheat code that I was able to learn and I could never unlearn it afterwards. Uh, speaking of John D. Rockefeller. That's uh, interesting other... what you say. I never thought of it that way. But now that you mention it, I think that would work really well to assume that people are dumber or more sensitive than they actually are will make you communicate in a more polite, understanding manner. Yes. And especially if you're someone who loves to fill your deadlines, you don't like to tolerate too much of the things that people don't like to do. Because for our fields, Harsh, we pretty much enjoy what we do. It feels enjoyable, feels congruent with our life. But there's plenty of people that straight up despise what they do and they're dragging their feet a lot. So be to be able to communicate that message in a way where you're not creating an enemy in the process is a skill set. And it's a skill set that should be taken very seriously, especially as we're becoming more interconnected than ever. We're living in the globalization age and with different cultures cross-communicating, where some cultures are very straight to the point just by autopilot, while in other cultures, if you do that, you're seen as being mean. So being able to read through cultures is a skill set in its own nowadays as well. Do you have a lot of people that you work with that are from different parts of the world? I do. But with the people I work with directly, in the sense that people I work with who are freelancers, I find that communicating directly is still better than trying to protect their ego. And that is because a lot of the times when you are indirect, people don't understand what you want that needs to be improved. When you're direct, they understand. They might not like it, but they, but they know that this needs to be improved. This is the problem. So with people who are working for themselves, like freelancers, it helps to be direct. So this guy is not going to be offended because he's also running a business of his own. He wants mm -hmm. to improve. But with an employee or someone you pay on a monthly basis who isn't invested in improving or who isn't, their relationship to their work and the amount of money they get is not as direct as with the freelancer. That helps to preserve their ego a little bit. It's more of an this, art than a science. I had this one manager a couple of years ago who was very zen from what it seemed like, a very calm guy. Then I had another coworker be like, yo, did you know that that guy got fired from his last job for his anger issues? So the manager's name was Mike. Okay, the very Zen guy. So when I heard that he got fired from his last job for anger issues, it just didn't make sense because he seemed so peaceful, right? And as more time started to go on by, the, I started to notice that he would always snap whenever deadlines were risked being missed. Other than that, he was very calm. And as I was winding down my time with the company, I spoke with him regarding why he would only get angry in certain moments. And that's when he gave me a completely different philosophy regarding anger. A lot of people who try to kill anger, that try to just destroy it and are like, nope, I don't need the anger. 
which unfortunately turns them into a ticking time bomb. With this manager, he's like, I embrace anger and leadership. I believe if you're a leader who never gets angry, then people are going to walk over you. But if you want to turn it into a tool, you got to know your limit. For me, I know that my limit is missing deadlines. If that's going to be a risk that's going to happen to me, I'm going to give myself permission to get angry. But once I define my limit, all the other stuff that I used to get angry at before, like people making jokes about me, that kind of stuff, no longer bother me. So that's something that I found very unique in regards to the emotion of anger. Do you ever have certain moments when you get angry with your employees, your friends, your philosophy? And do you have a certain perception regarding it? I think of anger as a tool in the sense that it has its uses. If you never get angry, people will walk over you and they will take advantage of you. But if you get angry all the time, no one will be no one will want to be around you. So it's a it's a tool that has to be used in certain circumstances. I think people who try to kill anger are naive in the sense that they have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, you... that's why it... go ahead. Well, that's why it's smart to at least be a little descriptive of what is it that sets me off. So for me personally, I used to have uh, anger issues with all this small stuff. I was becoming very sensitive. That's when I was like, man, what is my limit? Otherwise, I keep confusing the smallest things as the limit. So I came to learn that I'm someone that doesn't like to miss deadlines. If you're going to say that it's going to be around this time, do your best to do it around this time and maintain some enthusiasm in regarding meeting the deadline. Once I made that just rule for my mind, other stuff which would get me angry started to fall away. Like if people make jokes, that kind of stuff, it was like, man, I used to actually get angry about that. So if you're currently listening right now, if you're someone who struggles with anger issues, take some time to just be like, what is my boiling point? And once you find that boiling point, don't vilify it. Because as Harsh said that Anger is a tool, just like your ego is. You just got to know how to use it the correct way. And then it becomes your servant rather than your master. I think here's the thing with anger. You don't want to get angry at your friends because they don't owe you anything. In the sense that a friend is just a guy that you trust. And if he betrays your trust, it was still your fault for trusting him. He doesn't owes you anything so getting angry on him will not will not yield any results secondly it's also important that the other person if it's his fault he must accept that it's his fault if he doesn't if he doesn't believe it's he was wrong and you start screaming at him it's not going to do him or you any good because he doesn't think he was wrong in the first place does that make sense it does at that point you will just be talking to a brick wall where he thinks he was right and you are being unreasonable generally being angry is useful when you feel that people might be taking advantage of your good nature and you want to just show that if they try to take advantage of you there will be consequences for it for example if you find that you have some employees who are taking too many leaves and you don't well, they just think that you're not going to question them or if they're slacking off and the quality of their work is declining. Showing a bit of anger 
will remind them that you are the boss and you can fire them without you having to say that I will fire you. It's, it's an indirect way of showing authority. I can be angry at you and you can't be angry at me. I own you. It's, 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 without saying that, it's an implied thing. That's where anger is useful. When you're implying authority, when the other person is wrong and they know they are wrong. When the other person doesn't owe you anything, he's not an employee, he's just a friend. Or when he doesn't think he's wrong and you are being angry at him, he's just going to think you're unreasonable and it's not going to be a useful tool. Right. This is why with communication skills, there's always these nuances that you want to prime your mind for. And there's a lot of context you want to be aware of where a logical mind would be like, no, 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 anger should never be used. Uh, that's in a logical linear world. Yet we live in a nonlinear world where in certain cases, anger can come in handy. Just to give you another analogy regarding this. One thing that I've noticed is that listening skills is too an art. And what some people confuse as listening skills is just letting the other person talk the entire time. This mm -hmm. is a big mistake because when you just let someone else talk the entire time, the person who's speaking is feeling good. Whenever humans speak about themselves, it releases the same uh, pleasure hormones as uh, when they're having sex. That's how good it feels when a person is just speaking about themselves. It's socially unintelligent to consistently let them ramble without ever guiding the conversation back. That's why in a very logical world, a person who's just learning social dynamics may be like, oh, I'm just going to listen the entire time. Then the person's going to like me more because I'm basically allowing them to speak about a topic which makes them feel good. But in a nonlinear world, what's going to happen is you're going to prime the person to just talk when they're with you. They're not going to understand who you are. And surprisingly, their engagement towards you is going to drop. So these are some of the communication skills insights I talk about in this channel, because the unfortunate truth is that a lot of things regarding street smarts is often learned the hard way. And it's a completely different paradigm versus just formal education as a whole. One thing, um, I think you were the one who wrote a quote about using your ego. Was that you? Uh, do you recall writing a tweet like that a couple of months back? I think the only thing I've said about ego is that trying to kill your ego is a mistake. And the reason it's there is so that you understand when someone is trying to walk over you or when you are being taken advantage of. For example, let's say that you and I are little brothers. Okay, let's say we're children and our mother comes. And the mother says that I have $100 that I want to give to both of you. The way it will work is Arman will first say how much he wants of these $100. So he can say anywhere from $1 to $100. And then I can either accept the remaining amount or I can say no. And if I say no, then no, none of us gets any money. So if Arman says that, if, if for example, when mom asks this and you say $80, okay. So I have two options. I, either I can take 20 bucks that is the remaining of the 100 bucks or I can say no and none of us will get anything. What do you think is likely to happen in a world without ego? In a world without ego, I'll say yes because I will get 20 bucks and that is better than nothing. But in a realistic, in, an e in a world with ego, I will say no 
and none of us will get anything. And that would be because you tried to cheat me in the sense that you tried to get more than half, which we would assume would be fair because we're brothers. Mm -hmm. I think ego protects you from being taken advantage of like this. And the fact that you know that I will say no if you try to go over half will make you only claim for $50 so that I uh, I will also say, okay, 50 is fine. And then we have a deal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when you try to kill the ego, you get a nice guy. A nice guy is very different from the kind guy. The nice guy chases uh, approval. Uh, they want to be liked by the other person. That's their hidden intent. While the kind person wants to express authenticity, they want to be real, and they deliver their message in a very polite fashion. What often people make a mistake with is confusing niceness for kindness. It was actually a funny story. I had this friend recently that started a business, and he started selling shirts, which is like, uh, be very nice. And when I saw the shirt, I thought he was initially joking, but he was extremely serious. He was like, Armani, I think you should be very nice. We started talking more and more and more. And he wasn't describing nice. He was describing kind. And these different uh, phrasing and words has a huge impact in your behavior. And you can even just see it with a man to woman relationship. A guy who's overly nice, just uh, people pleasing a girl. Do you think he's going to get the girl or do you think she's going to be repulsed by him? Women are disgusted by men who are too nice. Yeah, and that's why knowing the distinction is huge. Now, regarding all that with the ego, not only is the ego something that I believe is a tool, I also think it's one of the greatest tools to become a better storyteller. Uh, I had this one client who was struggling with telling stories in a very expressive way. But if you were to ask him to describe the last person that cut him off in traffic, he got so detailed. He's like, you're not going to believe this, man. Here was this goon that came at me late night, uh, tailgating me. Then he came across right next to me, then cut me off in an abrupt way. I almost died. And on autopilot, he's sharing this beautiful story, which goes on to show that humans process information in storytelling. You don't really need to learn how to tell stories too much. You just got to move out of your own way. So the stories present themselves. And that's what the ego is capable of doing. So it seems as though that you're someone who uses the ego more as a tool rather than being used by it. I think as far as ego is concerned, you have to think from a game theory perspective from, from a long run. I think the ego is just something that gives you a signal of what, whether you think something is fair or not. So, for example, in the in the example I gave you about the hundred dollars splitting, if you think me say if I say no, and none of us get gets any money, in the future it will force you to be a bit more fair to me. So, for repeated games like this, for repeated things where I, we will keep interacting more and more and more, it's good to have ego. It's it's good to take that input from your ego. But if it was something, let's say we don't know each other, let's say you were just a random guy in the US and I was just a random guy in India and we were using this system and some random guy out of his goodwill was distributing this 100 bucks like this and you claimed 80 
would I then say yes or no? Then I would say yes, because if I say no, I get nothing. And it's not like by saying no, you and I are going to be more fair to each other in the next time. We are not going to have a next time. We're just random guys on the internet. I think that it depends on the situation. If if we if there are if there's a chance or if we are going to interact again and again and again, then it's important to have ego, because otherwise the other person will walk over you. But if it's a one-time interaction, then you have to think from a more game theoretic or how do I put it from more incentive perspective. Like, does your ego matter here or not? It likely doesn't because you're not going to see this person again. So what would teaching him a lesson accomplish? There are definitely people who will burn the other person, even in a situation like this, just out of ego. And I think they have their social use. But it's something you have to decide for yourself according to the situation, whether you feel that it's right to consider the input given to you by your ego as the best input or should you discard it because there are definitely times where your ego will lead you astray for example there are a lot of abrasive people who have a lot of power in the world and they will say some things to you that's going to piss you off or going to feel make you feel bad but if you if you were to listen to your ego you will not want to be around them but if you ignore your ego just by the fact that you're around someone so rich and powerful will also make you rich and powerful. So in, in a situation like this, it, it might be a good idea to just ignore your ego and go with it. It really depends on the situation. But the idea that ego is a bad thing and that you should try to get rid of it, I think is a very naive thing. I think we are, we're living in a very feminized society where anything that might give rise to any kind of conflict is negative. For example, ego is bad, anger is bad, rage is bad. When all of these are things which have their uses in different circumstances, nothing is bad. It just either right for the circumstance or not. But because we have been conditioned, the world has been raised in a very feminized way. We have been taught to believe that certain things are good and bad. For example, is if you if your son is using drugs, is hitting your son bad? It's not. If if you think using a stick and beating him up is gonna make him quit smoking or drugs or whatever, it's worth doing it. But it's something is that's a complete no no in a feminized world. I think everything has its uses and to keep things off the table just because you feel this is inappropriate in all circumstances is generally a mistake. By the way, oh, if, this, if this felt like something, if this didn't feel in, not constructed properly, that's because I'm just processing this on the fly. I haven't thought of it as much before. Yes. Uh, for all of you guys that are listening right now, uh, this these conversations are completely unscripted. It's raw. It's unfiltered. So you're getting a direct access to Life Math Money in real time, which is amazing. And Harsh, thanks again for you know taking some time for the podcast interview. But to add on to your point, uh, with feminine energy and masculine energy, both are energies which require 
to be leveraged. And when one dominates over the other too much, that's when destruction and chaos is in the horizon. Do you see masculine energy starting to, you know, become more balanced again in this feminized society? Or what are your projections regarding that? Mm, I don't think so. I think, are you familiar with this chart that good times lead to weak men, weak men lead to hard times, hard times lead to strong men, and strong men lead to good times? Yes, I love that quote. I think we are in the place where weak men lead to bad times. And I don't think it's about masculinity and femininity as much. I, I do think that we live in an overly feminized society. But overly masculinized societies are also not very good societies to live in. The balancing also doesn't strike me as the correct thing in the sense that how do you even define balance? It's such a delicate thing. I think it depends on the situation. You might want to be more aggressive. You might want to be less aggressive. I think that... Well, let, let, me to... clarify, mm -hmm. let me clarify that before you make your point, Harsh, because I'm completely against 50-50% balances in anything. I normally make that very clear in other content pieces. So I just did want to make that uh, known. What I normally refer in regard, regards to balance with energy is that both are needed, but different levels are needed. But I just wanted to make the uh, quick little disclaimer for anyone who's new to my content that I'm not a big fan of 50-50%. I think that's good in theory, but in the real world, I believe one side normally leads and we gently invite the other side in. That's my perspective in regards to balance. Just want to make that known real quick and you can continue. I think I think that it's a more of a circumstantial thing, but being overly feminized is bad for men. Even women don't respect it. For sure. What I've seen with your recent tweets, you could correct me if I'm wrong, is that you've been reading a lot of ancient texts, texts which are a couple of centuries, years old. Is there a reason why you're reading old school texts in this new school world? Are you getting any targeted values out of it so just to give what you said some context i'm reading the ramayan which is a sanatan dharma text it's it's a text of hinduism ramayan and i'm reading plutarch's lives which are biographies of a lot of old 2000 plus year old kings in europe the reason I'm reading them is simply to understand the world how it was a long time ago. It's one of those things I learned from programming. In the sense that when I started programming, I learned in Java. And later down the line, I learned Python. And when I learned Python, I understand Java a lot more. I understand why Java has all these types and why they are working in a particular way. Why, it, why is it called a type-checking language? And when I learned Python, I was able to contrast it to Java and I was able to understand Python better than I would have if I had if this was the only language I had known. I am trying to learn about the ancient world, how men were before this whole centralized pushing down of feminism and you know bad values has been upon us. For example, it's almost become 
a negative thing to be masculine. Like they use the word toxic masculinity now. So I'm trying to figure out or I'm trying to learn how the world and what values people had before this whole thing. And that's why I'm reading a lot of these older texts. I also want to learn more about Hinduism and that's why I'm reading the Ramayana. Ramayana. Although I've gotten into saying Ramayana because I interact with so many foreigners and whenever I say Ramayana, they, they, they can't pronounce it. So Ramayana for them. And what have you learned from reading these ancient texts, how they used to operate and process the world versus now? I have learned that a lot of the things I was told about the world was not true. In the sense that a lot of the things that people will say are universal truths or eternal truths are actually just lies that are that have been invented very recently. For example, I'll give you one example. It's somewhat controversial in the sense that men and women are equal and they were always equal and women were always oppressed. And that is not true. If you read history or if you, even if you think just logically, women were never oppressed. It was just how the world was. If if you were, say, a poor person, you would have to go and hunt for food. And since women are weaker, they can't hunt for food, they have to stay at home. So women actually get a safer environment in those worlds. But modern society will tell you that women were not allowed to work. The question is, why would anyone even want to work when they have the option of not working? And these conversations people do not have in the world today because they take it as an axiom that the feminized version of history is true history. When, in fact, it's just a completely modern, false story that has been presented to them since they were children. And it's just what they believe, but it doesn't make it true. And I'll, I'll give you a little more specific example. Are you familiar with the story in the Raman? I've heard about it roughly, but nothing in specific. So... The way a lot of people think is in the Ramayana, there are all these very pure characters who behave like robots. People think they are essentially not even human. They are the way they behave. It, it, the, the common story which everyone knows, people cannot really relate to these stories because they have been manipulated to the point that the characters are not even human. And I'm reading the Valmiki Ramayana translated by Baibik Devroy. And it's an it's a it's a translation of the unabridged version in the sense that there's no author's interpretation here. He's just taken the Sanskrit and he's translated it to Hindi. Oh sorry, English. So in the story of the Ramayana, what is commonly what commonly people think is that this Ram gets essentially his father is so I'll give you some background. So his father has three wives. Uh Kekai is one of his wives, and Keke wants her son to become the king. And she has, her husband, Dashrat, has said to Keke in the previous time that I'll give you two boons. That is that you you will say two things and I will do those two things for you. So because Keke wants this uh, to be, she wants her son to become king, which she says that the oldest son, that is Ram, should go to the jungle for 14 years and that that that's her boons. Okay, and what people normally think is that Ram and Lakshman and Sita just went to the jungle and they didn't protest and it was completely out of duty and everything like that. But in the actual book, the characters are so much more human. So when Ram 
was asked to go to the jungle by his father his father did not enjoy the process of telling him he was crying and everything ram's brother tells ram that i will fight for you and i will kill everyone in ayodhya the city who opposes you so you should just usurp the kingdom and kill everyone who gets in your way and i will help you do that ram's mother kaushalya says the same thing she says that yeah you should take over this country you should kill those people who oppose you and you should become king and ram's father himself does not he he doesn't like the fact that kekai has asked ram to go to the jungle for 14 years so he himself says that take me as a prisoner and usurp the kingdom but ram then says that no 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 this is my father my my fa- my father has to stay honest it's it's good dharma for him so i to ensure that his vow is fulfilled i'll go to the jungle and th- this is a more humane thing you know if you think about it this is more human that this guy's brother wants him to take over the kingdom his mother wants him to take over the kingdom his father wants what is to take over the kingdom and put him as a prisoner this is something that is more likely to happen than a more stoic you go to the jungle and he says okay bye which is what most people think happened mm-hmm. there are a lot of other red pills in the raman that people just don't know because they haven't read it and even i didn't know until i read it and i find that a lot of the stories from my own culture that i was told were essentially fabrications that were designed to make me behave in a particular way in the sense that if society wanted me to be a little more non-violent or whatever then they they just edited these previous stories to be non-violent for example every everyone was peaceful being violent is bad but if you read the actual text of these old books it it's not like that it doesn't say being violent is bad it says being violent is good as long if if for example if you're taking down someone who's evil then being violent is very good you should be violent but that's not something you will hear from contemporary society or contemporary renditions of previous stories i think a lot of the things that i was told were lies and i did not even realize that until i read the original sources and is this um is this something that you did your own self education on or is this something that you had other people sort of guide you in the right direction oh no i just found this book on amazon and i bought it on a whim and then i happened to start reading it and i got very interested in it it was good luck and thanks to the amazon's recommendation algorithm <laughs> do you also familiar yourself with other uh religious texts like Quran, Bible, Torah, all that stuff? I haven't read any of those yet. I do mm-hmm. want to read the Hebrew Bible for once. And that's because it had a big impact on John D Rockefeller and there were there's quite a few quotes that I've heard from my friends that I that I found very insightful or at least ones that I could relate to a lot. and the 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 main one that i really liked goes along the lines of a man who is skilled in his business shall stand before kings and will not stand among common men and i think that is a very wise quote and it sort of got into my head for a while and it affected how i think so that got me interested in reading the hebrew bible So at some point I will read it maybe after I get done with the Ramayana I have my hands full with everything else right now but after I get through with that 
I will pick it up. I might even read the Quran and everything, the the five books of Moses or whatever at some point, just out of knowledge. And I know that some people tend to think that you know if you follow one particular religion, you should never read anything else. But it's it's just the same thing with you know the thing I told you about Java and Python. You learn one thing, you learn quite a bit. But when you learn the other thing, you learn a lot of lot about the first thing. If you learn a lot of if you learn Java, and then you learn about Python, and you will learn a lot about Java simply by learning Python after Java because it will give you something to compare with. It will show you what the other things are. And I think that learning about more than one religion should behave in a similar way, especially when you see different religions, different subjects echoing similar points. When you see that, you're like, "Wait a minute, that looks familiar. I just saw that in the other uh, text. This must be something that's extremely fundamental or extremely important." This is something that I've noticed with coding, especially like once you start understanding that it's all about thinking correctly, that's when it's easier to transition. So you said you picked up Java, Python. Do you plan on picking up anything else or do you think those two are a pretty good start? I think by now I've picked up about a dozen languages. But for the most part, most of the courses that I've done, they were not about learning the language. They were just using the language as a tool to teach more fundamental concepts like how do you prove your code is correct? or what a good algorithm looks like, what is a more efficient algorithm. So the language is always just a tool. It was a pedagogical tool and not the, the core of the course. Yeah, and it's very similar with writing and speaking. For example, both complement one another. If you're someone who struggles with speaking right now, you might as well start writing because writing helps you slow your thoughts down. The more that you slow your thoughts down, the easier it is to learn how to think. Then. By learning how to think, clear speaking is simply a byproduct. So both of these work with one another. What do you think? My experience with writing, and I have been writing for many years on Life, Math, Money now, is that it helps you string sentences together much faster. So you learn to speak on the fly, and your sentences are more coherent than they would have been if you were not a writer. Right. So would you say that your uh, tweeting has helped you become a better speaker? To an extent, although I don't speak as much, so I have, uh, I don't have a way to know for sure if it has helped me improve because I haven't measured it. But I definitely think that it has. It has definitely helped me converse with people better because I have, I'm able to express myself in fewer words, and thus I allow them to speak for longer. Getting to the point is a skill set. Let's say someone is over talking a lot. To polish up the speech, it requires work. Someone who's like, "Oh, I just want to become a clear communicator." That's very similar to a fat guy who wants a six pack. Sure, you want the six pack, but what are you going to do to earn it? Are you going to get your proper sleep? Are you going to eat right? Are you going to uh, go to the gym consistently? Because if so, then you turn from fat to the six pack. And same with clear speech. Just saying, "Oh, I want to become a clear communicator," doesn't mean much. Are you going to start writing more? Are you going to start reading more? Because reading helps communication a lot. Are you going to start creating something more? If so, then yes, you're going to learn how to speak clearly. That's something that I've just learned. Basically, 
I'm not someone who lives a very unhealthy lifestyle because communication, your voice is a very holistic process where initially it seems as though that the voice is just coming out of your mouth. But if you go micro, every single time you're speaking, you could feel vibrations all the way down to your toe, which is why your voice is a holistic process. So if someone is struggling with their voice or struggling to think, it's not always simple as, oh, just stop mumbling. Sometimes it could be something much deeper than that, such as, are you getting enough sleep? I thought that was very interesting, finding similarities between going to the gym and speaking more. Hmm. Everything is connected. You're right in the sense that, for if you have a lot of coffee, you will find that your voice breaks a bit more and you pause more when you speak in the sense that you, you know, when someone is scared, they speak like this in the sense mm-hmm. that they blurt out words without processing them completely. And that's what happens when you have a lot of coffee as well. You know, you start blurting things out without processing them entirely. So it sounds like you are very emotional at the moment. So your Correct. physicality affects your sentence pr- processing and the way you speak more than you think. So you're definitely right. I don't exactly. know how big of a difference less sleep would make, but it would definitely make a measurable difference. So one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of the times it comes down to knowing your own body. For me, for example, right before a speech, I never eat. I do a thing called fasted speeches. And the more that I'm hungry before a speech, the more primal that I feel. Even before this interview, no eating or anything like that. And I feel more energy. I don't need much coffee. But if I give the same advice to someone else, uh, they look at me like I have three heads. You're telling me I'm not supposed to. You're not. You're telling me I'm not supposed to eat before this high pressure situation. You're crazy. So it comes down to understanding your body, and for me personally, like it's something too unhealthy. I notice makes me struggle with my voice. Uh, I think one thing that I eating a lot of food before something that requires a lot of alertness is generally a bad idea because when you eat a lot of calories, you want to go to sleep, and for something like speaking. is it's a time when you want to be alert and when you are hungry you are alert but when you are well fed you want to relax and you want to go to sleep i think that might be the thing here absolutely do you have a certain things and certain rituals that you do before high pressure situations sorry what situations a high pressure situations something that gets you your heart beating fast nothing in particular i've gotten used to high pressure situations so they don't bother me as much so got it i've just become it's it's just a normal part of my life that it's it's, it's not a big deal for example i'll give you uh, an example of this okay when i started in business every time i would get a sale i would be excited about it <laughs> it would be like a it would be, it would be like something that was new and it was exciting it would impact <laughs> my emotions Now my phone is always ringing with sales. Every ten minutes is a sale, and it, I don't care about it as much. Like it stopped bothering me. I've become exposed to it so much that it doesn't impact me at all. It's just normal, and that's how I feel about high pressure situations in general. Like I'm, oh, I always have a lot of things that need to be done. I'm always under pressure, so for me that is okay. Like it's fine. I think so for you. Being financially independent is also. fairly helpful in the sense that 
let's say that you have an important deadline you want to meet, but if you don't meet it, nothing is going to happen. You might, let's say that if you mess up a pitch, you will not get this client, but so what? It's not the end of the world. You are still your own boss. No one's going to fire you. So it's okay. So in the sense that there are, there are fewer consequences for me to be wrong. And that's just something I've gotten used to in the sense that you're not going to win everything. And not everything is worth ruining your health over in the sense that when you, when you are too stressed out, it messes up your health. And you will actually perform better in the long run if you let some things go. So my way of dealing with high pressure situations is just to be normal and not not get too tied up in it. I know not everyone has the luxury of being a businessman. That is like if you're an employee and you know you miss a deadline, then you're screwed. But I, I don't have that. So I mean, go ahead. I was sorry I cut you off. No, I mean you're describing an abundance mindset, which it's difficult to build an abundance mindset in all facets of your life. Just like you said with the employee, where if someone is an employee, uh, they may have certain moments where they don't have another opportunity at a certain thing. But here's what I noticed. If you have an abundance mindset in at least one part of your life, then dealing with high pressure situations becomes so much easier. Let's say a person is an upcoming speaker and is an employee. If this speaker acts like each and every single speech is going to be their last, then they're basically conditioning speech anxiety upon themselves. But let's say that this person also has a YouTube channel where they upload uh, three videos a week. That's something that they can start conditioning an abundance mindset towards, which can surprisingly spill over to the speech. They start thinking differently where they're like, you know, uh, this speech is going to be big, but I have more other speeches in the process. And with that correct headspace, they're capable of creating a much better talk. And let's say they're going to work right now. Even with work, sure, their options may be limited. But since they have abundance mindset in at least one part of life, they're capable of maintaining more composure than the person who's moving with a lot of fear. So my basic uh, way to measure this is if you can't name at least one thing that you're self-made on, where you put in the effort, you did your best to, you know, bring it into existence, then you're going to struggle having an abundance mindset. Abundance mindset is earned. It's something that needs to be practiced and it needs to be a very intentional approach. So with your high pressure situation fix, you're, you're pretty much putting yourself in high pressure situations all the time. So you're not noticing something that's out of the ordinary too much. Agreed. I think... Another thing that I do is that whenever I'm scared of doing something, that is something I will definitely do. For example, if I if I see a cute girl and I'm afraid of asking, if I feel that, you know, you sometimes feel that anxiety or that fear that, okay, you want to ask her out, but you're a little scared. And that's mm-hmm. that's a definite thing. If, if I feel that that's something I'm going to do definitely just to prove to myself that I'm going to do that, that I can do it. And I have done this type of thing for many, many years. For example, if I have to pitch a client or if I have to sell a product and I feel, if, if I feel scared of doing it, then I'm going to do it, even if it's going to fail, simply to show to myself that if I feel nothing is going to happen, like what's the worst that can happen? Let's say you go and ask for checkout and she says no, 
what's going to happen? Like, is anyone going to care that you asked a girl out you liked and she said, no, no, it's, you're not in high school and like, no, no one cares. <laughs> the world doesn't end when you fail. It's just that you get better, you get more practice. So it's always good for you to do things you're scared of. And I have done that for so long that for me, it's, it's a natural thing. And this, this is, I got this from a book I read a long time ago. It's a book called The 4-Hour Workweek by a guy called Tim Ferriss. And mm-hmm. his book had these things called comfort challenges. And this comfort challenges would be things like stare into someone's eyes for uh, when you're walking by. And it would also have things like go and ask a girl for a number. And I read this book when I was in 10th or 11th grade. This was back. This was over 10 years ago, I think. And when I read this book, when when I did those challenges, I was scared, but also realized that when I did the when I did the challenge a second time, I was less scared. And that's where I picked up the idea that if I feel scared of something, I have to do it just so that I'm not scared to do it the next time. There was one particular challenge in that book, and that was uh, lie down somewhere. So in the sense that if you're on the footpath, for 10 seconds, just lie down on the footpath. It's not <laughs> illegal. It's 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 just out of social convention in the sense that if you lie down on a footpath, nothing is going to happen. Okay, No one is going to step on you. It's not illegal to lie down on a footpath. There's nothing wrong that will happen to you by lying down on a footpath. And yet we are scared of doing it. And why are we scared of doing it? It's simply because of social perception. And I did that challenge a couple of times. I think I did that challenge three times. Just because the first time I was really scared. Okay, The first time I was I felt very uncomfortable while doing it. <laughs> the bet. second time I did it, I felt less uncomfortable, but I did feel uncomfortable. The third time too, I felt uncomfortable, but I had stopped caring. I, I realized that the last two times, nothing happened. No one remembered it. Everyone forgot. I never met any of those people who saw me do that again. So it just helped me become a bolder person. And that's what I have followed for the past 10 years at least. That whenever... Whenever something scares me or I feel uncomfortable or I, you know, you you feel that your heart rate is rising a lot and you don't want to do something, so it's, it's, a, it's like your body is afraid of it or, you know, you have some comfort zone thing and that's a good sign that you should do it. So your, um, your resolution is when you feel the fear, act on it quick because that's just priming your body to make it easier the next time. Yes, I think it's anytime you feel fear for something that is essentially like some, some I'm not essentially irrelevant. Okay, if you feel fear of you know there's a guy with a sword and he's killing everyone and you feel fear and run away, that's fine. You know, if you failed, then you would die. But for something like lying down on a footpath or asking a girl out or pitching a client or whatever, being wrong has no consequences, and your fear is essentially a mental thing. It has no, there is no real fear to have you should there's no logical reason for you should be to be afraid if for example let's say a girl says no you just go on your own way she forgets who you are it's not like she's going to think about you every day and tell everyone that this guy asked me out. it's not going to happen it's just in your head in those situations it's just an opportunity to improve and anytime you feel fear you should that's what you should think of like this is an opportunity for me to get better and you should then do what you were afraid of so there's uh, two types of fear for my philosophy. Fear one is the type that could actually kill you if a tiger is chasing you. And fear two is 
the potential illusion of threat. And this is, uh, for example, what you just said, uh, lying down on the ground. This is creating a fear which simulates the same effects as the tiger. Staying in your comfort zone happens when you confuse fear two as fear one. That's my personal formula for the whole comfort zone thing. I like the uh, I like the action steps that you take where you reduce the amount of time you have to think in order to just react quick. Because when you're terrified, for example, and you allow yourself to think too much, then you start overthinking and you start to find different ways on why you should get out of doing the task in the first place. And that's when you can uh, confuse uh, being a coward as your gut trying to tell you something. And that's why I, I like the philosophy a lot where you just react on it quick and then you just live with whatever because you don't give yourself enough time to think in the first place. In addition to this, I think there's certain body language moves which everyone should use, especially whenever they're nervous. And three include, uh, one is to raise your chin. Whenever you, you raise your chin just a little bit, uh, the, uh, the pressure starts to melt away and you start to feel more in the present moment. You'll see in a lot of presidential debates how a lot of the candidates, their chins are raised higher than usual in the beginning of the talk when they have most of their nerves. So that's one move to you know, bring yourself back to the present, especially when you're nervous. The second one is the smile. The smile is a very nice weapon. And you don't want to smile like, you know, like the Walmart smiley face, but <laughs> like a gentle little smirk once again brings you back to the present moment. And the third is squinting your eyes just a little bit. This is something that engages all of the face and allows you to once again bring yourself to the present moment. By using a few of these body language moves, plus doing what Harsh says, just going in, taking action ASAP, eventually the body starts to learn and become programmed in a way to understand that, yo, this isn't that bad. Uh, I mean, I could lie on a sidewalk again. <laughs> so you did that three times. I, I did that three times. And yeah, it, it really affected my perception of the world. I, I realized that a lot of the things that I think will affect me actually don't have any consequence and are just a part of the social programming that has been given to me in the sense that, you know, you as a human, you've been trained to follow the social norms and behave in a particular way and be embarrassed of certain things and not be embarrassed of certain things. And a lot of them are just, well, it keeps society functioning in the sense that if everyone starts lying down on the footpath, where will you walk? But <laughs> you shouldn't be afraid of doing it. Yeah, especially the people that are trying to escape their comfort zone. Exactly. I think for a lot of these people, some kind of exposure would help in the sense that if they're too afraid of, say, talking to people, then what they can do is go and ask people for the time. If, if someone is so afraid that they can't talk to a stranger, then at least they can approach someone and ask them the time. And next time they can ask a little more, like, what's the time? Thank you so much. How is it? Day? And see what they say. And over time, build more comfort. You have to, you have to teach your body that there is nothing is going to happen. Nothing bad is going to happen to you if you mess up. People try to be perfect. They, they think that if they're not smooth or if they're not like James Bond, like they're doing something bad. And that's the thing with these movies. Like being James Bond is not real. Even with me, let's say me on this podcast with you, 
I have been writing for three years now, and I have been on so many podcasts, and my voice is still not perfect, and my sentences are still not perfectly coherent. Does that mean I suck? No, I'll get better at it. But if I thought that I suck and I just stop doing podcasts, then I will never get better. Well, that's respect, man, because a lot of people who hypothetically get some criticism on their voice or how they talk. they never go back in to the battlefield again and polish it up while you on the other hand you get some compliments but just like anyone else out there you get your fair share of criticisms as well but we're back for a part 2 yep i think in part 1 a lot of people did not like my voice the thing is that <laughs> you know some things you just have to accept i can't change my voice there's nothing i can do about it this is the voice that god has given to me i like my voice and i don't care whether someone else likes it or not it is just how it is what i can improve is the content that i make the things i say using the voice that i have and that's what i can do i think that that's the only thing you can focus on what can you improve and what you can't and you will find that there are more things you can improve than the things you can't improve and by the way on the topic of being in the present i have actually found something very useful and this is something that i do after a long time of coding or studying or writing and i think even you might have discovered that if you say write for 3 hours it's very difficult to get back into the present your brain is still processing what you have written and you're not as attentive in real life are you for at least mm-hmm. half an hour or one hour or two hours after writing that's true so what i found is that you need to take your fingers and you need to start actually noticing the real world for example okay i'm looking at my computer right now and there's a desk here and it's a wooden desk and when i put my fingers on it i find that it's a little smooth and there's a microphone kept here and i touch the microphone and the metal on the microphone is very cold i touch the pop filter and i notice that it's rough and it has this fabricy feeling to it and just by feeling things with your hands the things around you you become into the present much quicker than you normally would So you're saying get your senses activated. No, I'm saying feel things with your fingers like any rough surface and try to notice what is actually there. If your jeans are rough, like run your hands on your jeans and try to notice the feeling you have on your hands. What's the temperature and it's 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 it's, it's like it, it'll bring you into the physical world very fast. And with this digital world that we're living in, these sort of tactics are very very crucial because just because things are becoming digitalized does not mean that analog is a thing of the past to this day i still write by hand uh, for a journal just because there's a slew of benefits by writing by hand you know you work on your motor skills your memory skills language skills etc and by you know actually feeling the uh, book and the journal and the pen it's just a different feeling and by describing what you just said i mean that's why i don't think the paperback books are ever going to go out of style because some people actually just want to get their hands and hold something then read it it's a completely different experience definitely i almost always read paperbacks if i can i have usually mhm you ever plan to release a paperback i think in the next maybe 2 years i will release 
a life math money archives in the sense that my articles i will convert it into a book and people can then read that book it will be on amazon it will be very cheap so you can put it in your library and the reason i will do that is a book if you if you say thousands of people have bought your book it's a very decentralized way of storing the knowledge if you take the bible for example the bible was essentially so many people had so many copies that it's essentially impossible to censor the bible it's, everybody was going to have a copy i want that to happen to life math money as well right now it's on the internet but if i say happen to get hit by a bus and life math money dies the website it, the information is just gone like there might be some archive websites but other than that you will not have a real way to find and access it but with physical books it will be on libraries it will be on people's racks everywhere and it'll survive the test of time so that's why i want to release a physical book but i will do it later maybe in a year or two because i i just don't have time for something like this right now well folks you just got the announcement here uh, expect something <laughs> in the near future <laughs> that's why you guys got to subscribe to this channel there's going to be innovative news like this coming out all the time you got to follow uh, armani's twitter man armani has very good twitter and he has definitely helped me improve my social skills and i read his book charisma king which is very useful thank you man i appreciate your support as usual and uh, i mean i'm sure most of the people here are following you on twitter but if you're not be sure to follow him i'm going to link all of life math money's socials in the description box i mean you been... more importantly follow me on telegram it's where i actually say things i want to say without the risk of getting banned your t- yeah send me the link for that too and i'll put it in the description box sounds good where where would you say is a big difference between a telegram group and an email list is there any significant differences or not much well telegram is still not completely permissionless in the sense that the telegram people can still delete your channel for whatever reason they want it's just that they are unlikely to do so or less likely than twitter because they are less pro censorship telegram has higher open rates in the sense that pe- since it's an instant messaging platform people will open the telegram emails have a 40% open rate so 60% of people will not even open the email you send them and of the 40% who do i think maybe less than half actually read all of it so there are two different modes of communication your email list is something you entirely own but your telegram is not it's 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 still someone else's platform but they are better landlords yes because when you're on twitter for example you're pretty much just renting their space you don't necessarily own their traffic if someone sees one of your tweets they'll be like okay nice tweet by life mad money on to the next one and they start scrolling when someone's on your site or when someone's on your email list more specifically and now I, you know i'm not too familiar with telegram how that works so i won't speak on it too much but when someone's on your email list now they're just looking at your content and even with email list it's smart to back it up every now and then uh, one of the people we were talking about earlier uh harsh i think it's steven molonu stefan yeah he, he he got censored by this company mailchimp do not use mailchimp by the way if if anyone's listening to this and you are starting an email list do not use mailchimp they censored a guy just because he didn't like his opinions and they kicked him out of the platform do not use mailchimp see i don't want my email list people ever you know doing something like that 
where they said MailChimp truly did hurt their brand that day when someone complained about Steven and immediately they're like, we have terminated this account. And that complaint wasn't even reasonable. Like Stefan's content, I don't agree with all the things he says, but and a lot of people think he's a white supremacist or whatever. I don't know. But I don't think that justifies him not being able to send email or make videos. He's not directly breaking the law. It's just his thoughts. Yeah, that's why even with your email list, folks, back it up because you never know when you may say something that is not deemed appropriate and something like that happens to you. Currently, I use Aweber, which hasn't been a problem for me. Is there a certain list that you use that you want to promote or you want to keep that private? I use Email Octopus. It's not, it doesn't send the email, but it connects to Amazon Web Services, which sends the email for you. So it's much cheaper. For, for example, I have 20,000 followers and I pay $30 a month, which is much, much cheaper than any other service. Other services will make you pay like $300 a month for 20,000 followers, 200 or $300. This is much cheaper since it uses AWS. Email Octopus. That's my first time hearing about it. It's a little tricky to set up initially. It did like an hour or so, but it's much cheaper and you save like 150 bucks a month, so it's worth it. And it has the same features. Like it's not, some people think just because it's AWS, the deliverability is bad. But in my experience, over 99.9% of people will get the email you send. Got it. Email Octopus. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly very smart to keep backing this up because having your own thing is crucial you also have a website that you build on routinely was that initially a part of your strategy because our the, talks together uh, helped me double down on my website as well so the life math money website was the first place where life math money was created and all the social media websites or sorry the social media accounts i have exist mostly to promote that website my main thing is life math money and writing articles there and Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all these podcasts are essentially so that you hear about Life Math Money and go read the articles there. So it isn't something extra. It's the core thing and everything else is just marketing for it. And there was an analogy you gave me where everything else is a flyer and the website is the restaurant. Oh, yeah. That's not my analogy, by the way. There's a guy who who said that to me and I found that very interesting. I, I forgot his name. Thomas J. Beaven. I think his ad the rate on Twitter is Thomas J. Beaven 1. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if he still uses Twitter. Mm-hmm. He wrote a guest post for me which was titled How to be a true autodidact. He should, uh, you know, people listening to this should check it out. The guy is truly a good writer. But then he disappeared and I don't, I'm not in touch with him. Plenty of people have done that with Twitter because you and I started our accounts roughly a month away from each other. And since that initial conversation we had, there's been plenty of people that we started with that don't use Twitter at all anymore. And they just disappeared. Do you see yourself ever just disappearing off to the winds? or no. do you, do you, It makes do you like the copy? too much money to just disappear. And it brings too many people on lifemathmoney.com for me to just stop using it. Twitter has been good to me for the most part. Like, I, I don't have, you know, as, my, as much as I crib about censorship, Twitter has been good to Life Math Money. Like it, my brand has grown a lot on Twitter and I have gratitude for it. And I don't see myself quitting Twitter. 
Twitter is just too good for right now. I think in the future, they, if they continue the censorship thing, they will lose this. But right now, Twitter is one of the best places to be on for someone who creates content and tries to market his website. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. If you know, some, some people will act like, okay, the money doesn't matter at all. And I'm just doing this out of the goodwill of my heart. But mm-hmm. it's still a business. You know, if, if you make no money at it, then you won't be motivated enough over the long run to do something. I think a lot of people who disappear simply could not figure out the monetization strategy. If they could make some money off of it, then they would not have disappeared. And another thing is with the creative output, where when someone niches down too much or they chase a niche, because that's a very hot niche at the moment, I came to notice that a lot of these people eventually get burnt out. Where for guys like you and me, we didn't really follow a niche from the beginning stages. I don't know if you did, but for me personally, there wasn't really a thing called the communication skills niche. Or even nowadays, whenever I promote one of my products, some of my followers will joke around and be like, you're truly in a blue ocean right now. You know that? And Because, you know, I'll, I'll promote a book on like mumbling and they don't see a product like that from anyone. And the reason why is because the niche was something that created over time regarding uh, me. And it just so happened to be communication skills. For you as well, I don't necessarily see you just discussing one particular niche. Was that something that was intentional or is that something that you don't even do? Like you actually do have a niche and I'm completely missing it at the moment. I think broadly, I don't have a niche. I have a target audience that is uh, life math money is about helping men live better lives. And that is men and doesn't include women in the sense that my content is targeted towards young males. And what do young males need to live better lives? They need to be fit, that is get fit. They need to make more money, that is get rich. And they need to improve their wisdom and their understanding of the world, that is get smarter. That's what life math money is about. And it just so happens that these topics encompass everything. Money includes crypto, getting fit, includes eating healthy and diet advice. Philosophy is included in getting smarter, dealing with people, social skills are all a part of that. So it just so happens that I picked a target audience that covers everything. There's nothing I can't talk about. And I generally talk about whatever I want. And that's what people seem to enjoy as well. Because it's not a hyper-targeted, very marketed thing in the sense that I'm not trying to make as much money as quickly as possible. And I, I don't advertise too much. I'm just distinctly trying to help people. And I will occasionally try to sell my products, sell my books, but I wouldn't I wouldn't shove it down people's throat by trying to manipulate them. Have you seen those newsletters where every single newsletter is about selling their course? My content actually tries to help people, help men get rich, get fit, get smarter. And the strategy the monetization strategy is that I will help you so much that you will want to buy my books just to pay me back. Mm. Value creation leads to value capture. Yes. And my customer acquisition strategy is my content will be so good and so useful to you that you will tell your friends about it. You will tweet about my content on social media. You will retweet my stuff and you will essentially want to consume it. It's like, it has to be useful. 
a lot of people on Twitter, what they do is their aim is to make money. They they actually broke and they need the money. So their focus on from day one is try to make as much money as possible. My focus, I already have money. My focus is helping you and trying to get you to live much better. It's it's improving your life and you will be motivated to buy things from me. You will be you will want to pay me back. This is not a philosophy that you normally hear from people making money online where they're like, man, you need the the click funnels, the landing pages, you need the red button, not the green one. And they're so focused on the tactics and then they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, you got to actually help people as well. Where your process is reversed. You're saying provide so much value first and then, you know, obviously have products as well where uh, someone can support you, uh, purchase it as well. I think my approach has worked better for me. It might not make me as much money as all these influencers are doing, but I think it's more sustainable. My brand grows faster. My message spreads more and more people hear about me. And I think over the long run, I will end up doing better than all the internet marketers themselves. There's a thing, uh, there's, an, there's something I learned from this guy called Paul Graham. And he says that growth is everything. And the idea is that you would rather grow by, let's say, 10% a week than and make no money. Like you would rather make grow by 10% a week and make one cent per customer than grow 1% a week and make a dollar per customer. Simply because by growing 10% a week, you will end up with so many customers that your one cent will become far more valuable. It'll, it'll have, it'll, the multiplier would be so much more and that's my idea my idea is to grow my brand so much that even though I'm not making as much money per customer or per reader I'm still helping them so much that enough of them will want to support me that I will make more money in the long run Do you have like an inspirational story of a way that your content created or your content changed someone's life yeah there's a guy who it's a a kid okay his name is okay i won't share his name so this this guy was about to do his graduation and this coronavirus thing happened and after this coronavirus thing happened he sent me an email and his story was something that is maybe more common than people think Uh, his dad got fired from his job his mother her salary was reduced in half. So her mother was making 200 bucks a month and now she was only making like 80 or 100 bucks a month. So this kid is now supporting three people. Now he's he got a job, some odd job. And he wrote to me an email, like, what should I do? And I've read your articles and I'm a motivated person and I'm willing to do whatever is right. So I wrote him a very specific piece on how he could become a virtual assistant. And he ended up doing that. He ended up becoming a virtual assistant. And now he makes enough money to pay the bills and everything. So he sent me an email saying that he paid his bills purely because of the money he made as a virtual assistant. Which is pretty interesting. that's That's something directly that I know for a fact that this guy's life is different because of the content that I have written. Wow, that's that's inspirational. And that's the type of uh, business that is unique. Because information simply cannot be corroded. Just like matter over time, you know, it rusts, it breaks apart. 
but your ideas can live on forever. And your ideas, if it hits the right person at the right time, it can actually alter their behaviors as well, which for this kid, I mean, his behavior is actually altered because he applied what you were saying. Agreed. I think that, you know, for the type of content that I'm making, that is self-improvement for men, maybe a couple hundred years ago, maybe even 200 years ago, this would be something that would be called common sense and would be taught to children by their parents. But because we live in such a feminized society today, this is something that's not that's just not taught to people anymore. People are just told to ignore these things or they're, they're told that these are toxic or whatever. And I'm just fulfilling that role. I'm just giving them the common sense that they should have been given by society in the first place. For example, if I say women and men are not equal, men have better emotional control than women, there are a lot of parents who will not say that to their children because they want to raise a non-sexist or whatever. You know, They have their ideology and they don't want to give this value to the children. Even though this value is true, so I'm giving people the truth that the world, the, the schools and the parents will not give them. And that's where the second part of the LMM title comes from. Learn what the schools won't teach you. Learn what the schools won't teach you. Did you ever hear of Jordan Peterson? I am familiar with it somewhat. Like I'm, I, don't, I haven't watched a lot of his content. Mm-hmm. I know that he's helped a lot of people and I respect him for it. I, yes, I know, also know that he he became a drug addict or something like that. I'm I'm not sure. I think it was on pain. He was on painkillers. I don't know the exact details, but around 2016, 2017, uh, he was blowing up. I mean, he was going from a person who was very niched uh, as a college professor in Canada to becoming mainstream, and a lot of the advice that he was giving was resonating with young men. And women as well, but very much towards young men. And his message pretty much was talking about, you know, find a vision, pull yourself out of darkness, uh, clean your room. That's something that he was extremely famous for, uh, where you clean your room before you try to change the entire world. Basically, manage yourself before you can manage others. And this message was resonating for a long time. But eventually, his detractors were saying, what you're saying is common sense. Why are people finding you to be influential. And that's when he said that what I'm saying is common sense to you, but a lot of these kids, these youngsters have never heard it in their life. And that's why they're like trying to get this truth for the first time. So I just thought you may find that interesting because this is something that he was going through a couple of years ago. That's very similar to what you may be going through right now, where what you may view as common sense as is an insight to another person. Agreed. I, th- I think it's the same thing. And this is just as a segue. Do you know why it's mostly men who are interested in this type of content? No, why? It's because only men need to be interested. A woman does not need to self-improve. Like a man is worthless. Okay, I, let's say let's take an eighteen-year-old man. This is just a kid. Okay, society views him as. A kid who knows nothing, he's completely worthless and he still has to work on himself if he wants to be valuable. And 18-year-old, on the other hand, is at the top of her power. She is young and hot and beautiful and fertile. She is already made. So women come out valuable from birth, but men have to build their worth. 
and that's why men are naturally drawn towards self improvement whereas women don't care about this as much they would rather be more beautiful because that is something that has a more direct impact on their life and most of your audience members are men at the moment right it has so to be men like, this is content that is attractive to men women like there are some women who do care about self improvement but 80 to 90% of women do not care about self improvement and that is because they don't need to a woman could be a complete loser and she could still live a great life she could get married and have children and have her biological purpose fulfilled a man who's a complete loser will live a shitty life he will not be able to find a woman he will not have kids his genes will die off so for a man it's far more important to self improve but for a woman it's just she might do it or she might not do it but it's it's definitely not a necessity so it's not in her genes to put a lot of premium on self improvement women would rather be more harmonious and they would rather focus on makeup and beauty and things of that sort and men generally don't really care about those things like if you if you ask a man to put on makeup he's going to say what's the point but for a woman she would spend 20 minutes doing it every day and men would rather care about self improvement making more money because it improves their reproductive chances and over the long run that's what evolution has wired humans for women have been wired to pursue essentially things that make them more seductive like beauty things like dancing singing and the arts in general while men are wired to pursue what makes them more valuable that is what makes them more money what makes them stronger what gives them more control over territory does that make sense it does make sense and as a guy who is not self improving what's your message to them it's do or die my friend no one cares about you if you don't want to self improve that's your choice but you can't blame the world for not considering you to be worth anything it's a it's a cold world out there where you need to k- keep on finding different methods to improve and the with with the i don't think see, here's the thing okay i find that whenever these things are used in the world like for example it's a cold world i don't i think these are just perceptions okay the world just is like this is the world it's not cold or warm or anything it's if you think it's cold it's only because you expected it to be warmer and therefore you find it to be cold uh, let me clarify by cold i mean uh, now i got to go a little bit technical uh with my engineering and physics <laughs> background <laughs> you made me do it hard now I'm just messing with you no I, what i mean by cold is high entropy a high entropy is basically where when things are not being improved consistently a chaos is a byproduct something like that in our day-to-day life is our room if we don't keep on cleaning our room on a routine basis then there's going to be like shadows that get in the corner uh, our socks are going to be all over the place and it's going to get messy the modern Stop information about me, <laughs> okay let's switch to uh the, the kitchen <laughs> instead of the living room no but um, that's high entropy so when i mean cold it's probably smarter to say high entropy where if you are not improving in any way then your room is unfortunately becoming very messy in the process the whole concept of maintaining is simply an illusion you can improve for a little bit you can uh, be set back for a little bit and it'll give the perception of maintaining 
But when you're actually looking in, it's either you're going up or down. One of my favorite books is by Thomas Campbell. It's called My Big Toe. I highly recommend you guys read it if you're interested in learning more about entropy and just how digital physics, that sort of stuff works. So I did just want to break that down because I, I don't want to be like some sort of pessimistic dude, like, oh man, it's a cold world. What's even the point? Uh, but what I do mean is that it's high entropy where I don't think you have a say in the self-improvement matter uh, if you want a meaningful life. I would agree. I think there's an analogy that goes here. Like It's like a treadmill. You know, If you stand still, you're going backward. I never heard that analogy, but I love it. You have, you have anything else with that? Walking, you know, as a, it's like when, going back to the original point, a man who doesn't want to self improve is like a woman who doesn't want to lose weight. It, it's fine, like you know, if that's what you want to do. I don't care, like no one else does. But a fat woman will never get a good man, and a loser guy will never get a valuable woman. It's just, just you know, there, there might be exceptions, but this is the general thing. Like, if you don't want to increase your value, that's fine. But then you have to be okay with being low value. What generally pe- people do is they they are low value. They don't they don't want to improve their value. But then they start complaining about the world. They they start going like, okay, fat is beautiful, and men should start. Men are bad for not liking fat women, and you know things like that. That is just you pushing your project. You're projecting your mental models on the world but the world just stays okay that's how the world is men are a certain way women are a certain way the world works a certain way it's how we have evolved and if you don't want to increase the value that's fine and the world will not care what you want if you are low value it's you're going to be treated as such you're not if you think you should be treated differently the world doesn't care about that if you're poor the world doesn't care that you should still be t- treated with dignity. Most people will not treat you with dignity. It's just how it is. And if someone is trying to get started in the self-improvement space, is there something that you would say, this is a non-negotiable, you have to do this? Lifting. Go on, expand. Because I understand what you're saying, but I, I know that you're going to have some insight for this. The single most important place you can start is lifting because it'll change the hormones in your body. Energy is everything. And where does energy come from? Energy comes from your hormones. And when you start lifting, you will... Okay, if you've never lifted weights before, I guarantee that the hormones that you have in your body are off balance. It's, It's a guarantee, like... 99.9999% 99.9999% of you who do not lift have bad hormone balances. And when you start lifting, these will start correcting themselves. And you will start becoming more of what you should have been as you start lifting. You will start eating cleaner. You will have more energy. You will have more drive. You will be bolder. You will be more masculine. Everything will improve when you start lifting. There are no downsides to it. It's purely upside. And lifting is a habit that sticks very easily. When you start lifting, your body will start changing very fast. In one month, you will start seeing changes in yourself. In two months, your friends, family, your parents will start seeing changes in your body. In three months, people will tell you that you look a little different. All of this will motivate you to keep lifting. I have 
very rarely come across someone who lifted for three months and then stopped. Most people stop within two weeks, but if you can go three months, I guarantee that you will lift for the rest of your life simply because of how much of a difference it makes. Lifting is the place to start and the best habit you can generate. Mm, that gives me chills down the spine because more people need to hear this. Maybe down the line, I'm going to actually clip this section out and make it a separate video because lifting is a game changer. It's not only a game changer for the physicality of your life. It just changes your routine as a whole. You are going to feel much more inclined to sleep better. You're going to feel much more inclined to eat because otherwise you're going to be like, man, I wasted all that time in the gym to eat a donut. No, no, no. I'm going to eat properly. And it's just going to lead to a better social life as well, because whether people want to say it or not, they're judging you all the time. It's smart to judge someone on something that they can control their fitness, their attire, their body language, and smart not to control, uh, judge them on what they can't control. But fitness is something that anyone can control. So if you have a gym near you, use it. And if you don't, you have gravity. That's always going to help. Oh, by the way, there's something I want to add to what you said. So you said that if you work out and you wouldn't want to eat a donut because you would feel that you wasted your workout, but there's more to it than that. What happens is that, the re why do you crave a donut in the first place? Your body wants the dopamine and the endorphins that come from eating that high calorie, high sugar food. What will happen when you start lifting is that exercise gives you a lot of dopamine and endorphins anyway. And it'll just reduce the cravings you have. So it'll nip the problem in the bud. You will just have less cravings to eat unhealthy food when you're lifting. And you will find that, okay, let's, let's say you're lifting regularly and you take a week off. And by taking a week off, you will realize that you have far more cravings to eat unhealthy food. And that's because you're not getting all these endorphins and dopamine from your workout. And your body is seeking them elsewhere. Someone's been doing their research. I love it. <laughs> and that's the thing with lifting. I mean, the more that you want to do it, the more that you should be equipping yourself with this kind of knowledge. Because when you understand the science and you could explain it clearly to other people, this changes the physiology of your brain and you're much more inclined to use it. With gratitude practice or a meditation practice, it's one thing to just understand that it works for other people. But if you could understand some of the scientific benefits of it, some of the very in-depth styles of gratitude or meditation, it's much more likely that someone will pick up the habit long term. Do you, do you do any form of specific research? Is there any person that you would recommend learning from or just a wide net? There's a book I like. Uh, it's called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. I recommend people read that. It's, it's very good. Outside of that, I don't remember any other books that I've read. I do find that more than the research itself, habits tend to stick when you can see the benefits it brings you quickly. In the sense that if you work out for a month and you start seeing changes in your body and people are complimenting you, then it's very likely that you will continue going to the gym because everyone enjoys compliments. You know, you, you can see the results. But there are habits that take far longer for you to see any results. And those habits are much harder to build. And how would you recommend building it in the initial stages if you've had destructive habits for an excessively long time? 
going to the gym and just building up from there yeah going to the gym and just building it up from there i have an entire program on this to be honest this is something i actually had to figure out myself uh, if you go to gum.co/stuff i have a 90 day self improvement program and i've put together essentially i've figured out the best way to put a bunch of good habits together mm-hmm. that feed on to each other for example you can eat clean when you are lifting when you exercise it's easier to eat clean and it's easier to meditate more it's easier to get, develop a meditation habit when your diet is good so i've figured out a lot of these connections together and i've created a 90 day self improvement program which you know if someone is interested in this particular topic they can check out and it's going to be in the link in the description box as well if that subject does interest you harsh this was a talk of a lifetime and we're going to be doing plenty more of this in the near future as we wind down is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience nothing read my website on lifemathmoney.com and that is where everything i have to say is and the hold on hold on um i'm going to redo that segment again my bad i was like thinking about uh this one uh, this like little message popped up and i was like shit i forgot this <laughs> thing i was supposed to do so you mind if we do that closing yeah, segment no one problem, more time no sure okay and i'm going to i'm going to hype you up a little bit too so if you want to hype me up uh just oh, you sure, can no yeah, okay so okay all right harsh we should okay let me do it again all right harsh this has been a conversation that's been epic we've discussed so many different topics and we got to make this more routine people love seeing you on the channel and we always have great conversations is there anything else that you would like to say before we wrap it up no i really enjoyed the podcast and i think i learned quite a bit from a conversation with you i definitely think everyone listening to this should give you a follow on twitter and subscribe to this youtube account you're listening to on i think this is going to be on armani's account so give it a subscribe he makes very good content on communication and that is something that is useful to everybody everywhere there are no downsides to being a better communicator thank you very much and i've learned a lot from you as well from the life math money account a lot about discipline a lot about mindset and a lot about taking accountability for your life harsh's information is all going to be in the description box so i recommend you check out his other profiles his products as well I've consumed a lot of his content and have elevated as a person from that. Till next time, Life Math Money. Thank you again for joining the show. Thank you, Arman. Have a good day.